into the mortal realms and Age's Sigmar story phase. Grab your hammer so we can clear a path through the chaos and forge our own narrative in the Age of Sigmar. Your allies through the Stargates this episode are... Well, my name is Paul, and what do you call it when Seraphon bring a ziggurat down and landed in the realms? What? Jurassic parking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Aaron. Uh, put your headdress on, leave the Amazon, everybody walk the Seraphon. <laughs> wow. Impressive. And I'm Phil, here from my own spawning pool, just for this episode. Nice. And this is Eric. Get the sheriff, son. We're hunting Seraphon. <laughs> In this episode, we cover the lore of the Seraphon Battle Tome. Get ready to hear a whole lot of unintelligible growling, unfathomable plans, and head into the stars. And then, if we have time after that, we'll talk about those lizard men. How are you doing tonight, my Spawnstellation brothers? <laughs> So good. Whoa. Oh, God, Whoa. listeners, at this point in the episode, you do not know how difficult that intro was for all of us. Um, yeah. Well, they, weren't, they wouldn't have known. I mean, I pulled that off slick in the edit. Nobody knew yeah. it was yeah. you, right? You know, we were yeah, I, I said us. Said I wasn't was pointing any fingers. I got I to find a new scripting coach. <laughs> new copywriter for this. A yeah. lot of this yeah. is going to make it in the back end of the episode, though. I, I promise oh, you that. Oh, boy. Are you guys doing all right in uh, stuck here in the void? You guys uh, handling handling the isolation all right? Uh, yes. Ish. I feel like I'm on a spaceship in the space between realms, uh, isolated from the world at large, but I'll survive. If the Seraphon can do it, I can do it. For sure. You just need a magical god dragon to come and save you at the end. That's all. Yeah. Actually, I have like three or four of those, I think, here somewhere. So. Oh, okay. Sweet. You're good. Solid. You should share those. On the send shelf. you my address. <laughs> I'm just sitting in my own gibbering dome, having a great time. Awesome. Nice. I mean, also good, but sad about yeah. any kind. Yeah. Way to Nobody bring everybody said I down. Jeez. Eric, <laughs> hmm. uh, how are you doing? How are you surviving? If you are, in fact. I am surviving. I'm here. And I'm feeling good. Um, and I'm ready to hang out with you guys. So I'm nice. excited. Have you gotten any hobby done? Since the last episode, gotten a little bit of hobby done. Um, I've got a couple of things here my by my desk. So if there's like five minutes where I can't, you know, shoot off an email or whatever, I might pick up a brush and paint a check on one of my checker pattern planes. So yeah, it's all how good. about you? How about you, Paul? What kind of hobby have you been doing? Well, I uh, I built an army. I built a squiggle inch inspired by Ben Johnson. Did some conversions on it that I'm pretty happy with. I built a ton of terrain and started painting it as well. So actually got quite a bit done. Very cool. Did you have many squigs before? Like you, I mean, you can, you're a goblin guy. Uh, yes, I have the old metal squigs, but all the plastic squigs were all built in the last two weeks. Oh, geez Louise. So that was, that well, was congrats. a fun project. So. Right Phil, have you been doing any, any hobbying? I have been very busy with work and I, have been spending a lot of time with my wife so i have not done any hobbying and i am very much looking forward to doing this recording so that i can feel sort of like i'm still part of this hobby yeah <laughs> tapped in um or convince your wife to hobby with you because the a couple that hobbies together stays together very true fact 
I, I mean, I have nothing to base that on. I, I wouldn't even know what that looked like, but um, fair enough. People have told me that this must yeah, be true. I read it. I read it somewhere in a book. Um, on the internet. In a book. <laughs> on an internet book. Uh, I, to make this short and sweet, have not hobbied on anything uh, whatsoever because as listeners know, for the most part, all I ever do is file stuff and it's hard to f- have a really sharp knife in your hand uh, when your kids are around just all the time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, no, I... I a screeching halt standstill um but yeah like like you you folks have said i feel like this is going to be my outlet tonight right now um will be my interfacing with the the hobby world at large you fine gentlemen awesome um, you've reached the peak yeah we've the, the pinnacle it's only downhill from here uh but oh. but <laughs> no, no i mean to, Guys, it's looking up. Daylight savings is here. Like it's getting brighter and lighter and warmer. No, I'm I'm optimistic. I think we're- it was over 50 degrees today. Getting outside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I personally didn't leave the house, but it looked nice out my window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, enough about real life nonsense. Uh, just bringing everybody down. Let's get transported to a dream world of magic, and we can talk about our our story phase today. Uh, and we are going to be chatting about as Eric mentioned earlier the seraphon battle tome came out not too long ago how exciting you guys jazzed super excited super duper excited well in that case let's jump right into the story phase paul if you would yeah in the story phase we delve into the stories characters creatures and environments of the nine realms and even the space above them Ooh, yes, uh, in the high altitudes. Um, all right, cool. So let's we're going to do a story phase. We're doing a battle tome. Um, so uh, I personally like to start. And since I'm talking, uh, I'm going to start here. Uh, we're going to talk about who, who, the, who the race is generally. Um, and what better way to do so is I want to get your guys' one-sentence description of who the Seraphon are. For those folks who maybe who don't, who don't know them, um, who aren't familiar with the old Lizardmen, um, of the, the previous uh, game or uh, the Seraphon as they exist today. How would you use one sentence to, to catch someone up? Um, I'm going to start with Paul because he always has a good one. All right. They are alien Aztec lizard men, spaceship dwelling primeval monsters. Okay. Okay. I don't know if that's a sentence though. Well, he said, said they, they are, are, so it could yeah. have been um, anything. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, was, I was about to pick it apart, but sure, sure, sure. Um, uh, Eric, let's let's see if you can do uh, do one better. <clears throat> nope, I can't. Oh. I, I encourage you to try. <laughs> <laughs> All right, they the Seraphon are a race of star lizards, laser dinosaur, thunder. Monsters. Crap, I couldn't do a sentence either. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bunch of cool things jammed together, man. It's true, as most uh, Age of Sigmar armies are. Uh, Phil, t- can you, can you, I mean, these guys have done this before. Can can you uh, teach Save the us. teachers, master the masters? Can you uh, give me your rendition, a one sentence description of these Seraphon? Certainly Please try. save me. So the Seraphon are. Dinosaur riding lizards led by frogs in space. <laughs> in, in space. In space. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. Um, 
I guess I'm going to try too. I was hoping, I mean, Phil's was a very good one. Uh, I was hoping it would be, it would just be a showstopper. So I wouldn't even have to attempt it, but <laughs> I'm going to try and slide in here. I want to say um, simultaneously primitive and yet impossibly advanced. The Seraphon are lizard humanoids uh, empowered by the realm of Azir with the mission to clear chaos from the mortal realms. What do you guys think about that? It's it's it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> I feel like I've got, I should I've just got. quit English. <laughs> I've got, I got a round of applause, and then Phil slides in there with the. It's fine. It's, I guess it's cool. Uh, we'll get you guys to me all the, We'll get to the details. Yeah, mixed mixed messages. All right, so let's let's talk. Let's try to find some similarities. What were some of the through lines from from our our, our sentence descriptions? Um, besides just flat out lizards, which anybody looking at the book or at the models can see that these are a lizard people. Um, let's think. So I think I heard that uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of space references. What what about space or or stars? What does that have to do with um, the the Seraphon here? Um, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Ooh, I got this. Hit me. So, well, you know, the uh, space, by space we mean uh, the upper echelon, the, the outer realms or, or rim of Azir. Um, and uh, they've come not only to Azir's where they've kind of landed in, in mass, but through the void, they are found uh, floating through the void, which is the space between realms and, and beyond realms. And they came from the old world uh, escaped in their starships as the old world was uh, being destroyed. And uh, so kind of they found uh, over thousands and thousands of years were drifting and their ships powered down. Um, and uh, so the space is this, uh, yeah, the void and, uh, you know, Azir kind of make up this, this space that they're from. Um, yeah. Space. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you talk about um, Azir and that's another component. It's not just, you know, they're just outer space alien type folks, but um, they are sort of tethered, I guess, to the mortal realms in some sense, and that they are sort of imbued by Azirian magic or the, the the realm of Azir, kind of similarly to like the way the Stormcast are. So the the lightning is sort of in their veins, or at least the light uh, uh, is is in their veins as well. So they are sort of directly tied to Azir, and that sort of informs a lot of who they are and why they are and their their. A role in the realms as well, so that's that's uh, fairly important. Um, Phil, you had mentioned uh, frogs. Uh, expand on that, if you would. Sure. So the frogs that I was referencing are the creatures known as the Slon, who are these all, I guess, not entirely all knowing, but extremely uh, prescient amphibious mages that uh, lead the Seraphon through their goals of trying to destroy chaos. Um, and they are always thinking in these long, grand schemes and uh, are extremely powerful in terms of magic, but don't, don't busy themselves with day-to-day -day tasks very often. And they're very like abstract. Like it would it would blow your mind if you had any concept of what was going on in their uh, froggy brains. Um, For sure, Paul uh, Phil had sort of mentioned you know fighting chaos. Like the, uh, 
Seraphon do have a mission or a goal. Like, would, mm-hmm. would you be willing to talk about that at all? Uh, well, they have this grand plan, which was given to them by the old ones. Um, this is something that was referenced very heavily in the Warhammer Fantasy Battle lore and is making a comeback now in the AOS lore. Um, so for mortal re- the mortal realms, um, the Slan believe that the old ones actually created the mortal realms. And the mortal realms contains the same sort of ley lines and magic that the old world did. And their grand plan is to organize, dominate, defend these nexuses of power um, that are created by the ley lines in order to fulfill the Old One's plans. And the Old One's plans were created in order to destroy chaos. It failed in the Old World, so they're going to try again in the Mortal Realms to eliminate chaos from the realms. That was a a cool, uh, interesting little development. Sure, sure. They're sort of the consummate, like anti-chaos. Like that is, I mean, if yep. uh, maybe other people sort of are like, eh, chaos is gross. So I don't, I don't like them. But like Seraphon are locked in, like focused to the end uh, of of chaos. My limited impression of them from Eighth Edition, I felt like they were their mission was uh, survive the Skaven. Uh, a lot of the stories I got were just they were in in doom and peril by uh, the Skaven as a mortal enemy. Um, so this definitely kind of puts them where Skaven have been maybe put as the lowest of the low in age of Sigmar. Uh, this kind of elevates them to kind of the highest of the high, interestingly enough. They were always trying to destroy chaos. Like that was the ultimate goal is to end the chaos gods, but the Skaven were always a problem because they were always like getting into their temple cities and stuff. Oh, they're always getting in there and so I, I guess maybe one difference is well and i'm not know if now's the time to talk about it but like old lizard men were kind of isolationists just because they were just happened to be separated by an by an ocean from everybody um and that that maybe is similar in some ways to what the seraphon are now because they are sort of removed from the realms at large and they are were sort of removed from society whereas i think now they're taking a little bit more of an active role um in sort of the eradication of chaos which they maybe weren't as uniquely positioned to do so in the old world yeah um but i think one of the interesting things about um this specific background is that it says that the old world was surrounded by the void and the mortal realms is surrounded by the void so there is some connection between the two of them right even though the old world is blown up they are accessible through the void what we don't have an idea of is the distance traveled between the old world and the mortal realms, but we know that there was some distance that was traveled. Um, and we do know that the, um, the spaceships of the, the Slan are ziggurats, and they are powered by magic, and that within the void, the magic has been removed enough to the point where they were forced to go into basically hibernation in order to not die and were eventually awoken by Dracothian. I guess just just to hit on a point that you had mentioned, because I feel like I've read this, but I don't I don't know for certain. But didn't Sigmar survive the end times by like holding on to the husk of the old world after it had exploded, and that's how Dracothian found him and brought him to the mortal realms? So so we know at least two things from the old world crossed the void. Mm-hmm. 
Well, at this point, a bunch of stuff from the old well, world now have, have survived for, well, for any number of reasons. But but yeah. a, a bunch of the, so Nagash obviously survived. But these are the first things that are not gods that survived intact from the destruction of the end times into the mortal realms, um, without the aid of a god. Right, like some of the characters might have survived from the old world, but they survived within the belly of Slanesh or some such thing. Right. These of their own agency fled the old world before the destruction and arrived in the mortal realms intact. And the interesting thing is that these slan, to our knowledge, have not been changed, right? These are the same slan to the point where even the only named character in the book is a slan who is the same slan that he was in the old world. So most of the characters that we experience on the tabletop are actually reincarnations or changed from mortal into immortal gods. But these are the first mortal beings that arrived from, they basically stepped from one world to the next, unchanged as it were, which is mm-hmm, a fascinating mm-hmm. hook to me. Well, I would, I would, I would maybe disagree with that. And let me, let me explain why as, as the story progresses. So Dracothian finds them basically. And they're, um, as they're sort of floating in space, they, they drop into this, um, like sus- suspended animation, uh, a little bit. Like the Slan realize that they're losing their followers through this, mm-hmm. like endless, like traveling that they're doing. And so they start powering down the ships a little bit, going into a stasis, uh, putting their putting their lizards to sleep basically well as you know things get cold and like their body temperature drops and they you know hibernate you might say they're cold-blooded uh what i mean yeah i would explicitly say that (laughs) (laughs) anyways um Dracothium finds them and he and he sort of imbues his magic and he leads them um to the mortal realms and azir specifically so their spaceships are like oh sweet let's let's follow this guy and they uh boogie to azir and they they set up shop in sort of the high reaches like the high echelons up and up into the higher um what's the word strata of of azir um mm-hmm. in their spaceships and they're able to absorb some of this azirian energy and in doing so they're able to bring their you know sleeping forces back to life and because they exist in this realm for so long and it's in a such a like unique space um they actually themselves become imbue- imbued with uh, azirian energy and it starts to like permeate them and uh, I guess run through their veins. So in a sense, maybe they're not cold blooded. They're not blooded at all. But oftentimes they have Azirian magic um, through their their veins as well. Um, and when you say that they're not changed, I would say maybe they are changed because that was never necessarily a component of the lizard men before. I mean, granted they had access to the lower heavens, so I mean they had yes. some connection to that, but they were never, mm-hmm. you know chock full of it like it, it wasn't coursing that's through true. them um and so yeah. i would say that maybe that would be a distinct difference now granted i don't know if that's just like through the sauruses and the skinks and maybe mm-hmm. the slan or slan i should say um yeah. aren't necessarily as different but i mean they could be too like they might be just as yeah. uh tied to his ear um as the rest of their forces are um but that's where they yeah can i capitulate but clarify can i say that they haven't changed but the mortal realms has changed them is that no, a good point? That doesn't, Distinction not, without a difference. No, yeah, not at all. <laughs> I, I do think that the... Uh, I think you're right that the Slan probably haven't changed at all because my understanding was that the reason that they now are imbued with the magic of Azir is because their ships are being powered by the magic of Azir and so the spawning pools are being powered by the magic of Azir. And so as they started spawning new Saurus and Skinks, 
they were inherently imbued with the magic of Azir. Oh, okay. Yeah, the okay. Slan are effectively immortal, and so they haven't been respawned. They can't mm-hmm. spawn more Slan, in fact. So they are the same, but all of the creatures they continue to spawn to replenish their armies are new. Okay, uh, fair enough. And we can touch on more of that when they start to coalesce, because they start Ooh. to change. Man, so, cool buzzword. Do you want to hear a hot take? Not yet. I guess so. All right. Sigmar stole the Sigmarabalum idea from the Seraphon. What? Sigmar. The Seraphon had been leaving in the high, did, high Azir. Did, did Sigmar know about the Seraphon? I, I would imagine he had to. I think he I think he did. Um well let, let's 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 jump into like I guess what, what happens next because it's while they're setting up shop up in the high Azir, um the moral realms are are have are existing at this point. And um the Seraphon start dropping in here and there periodically, um, and spending a little bit more time in, in the moral realms. However, they're not necessarily dramatically interacting with the the burgeoning uh, civilizations of of the moral realms in this age of myth. There's there's you know these sort of primitive societies that are growing. Um, Sigmar is doing what he's doing, and I guess the rest of the pantheon are, are doing what they can to sort of foster um, the moral realms and, and generate the, sort of the the life that we know sort of today. Um, and the uh, Seraphon, like there there's um, what would you call it? They, they they have sort of legends and myths about the Seraphon. Like the, the people are uh, writing. Um, like hieroglyphs on, on cave walls and stuff about like these these myth, mystical mythical beasts, um, but they're not you know integrating really uh, with the the world. Um, but but what are what are they doing? Does anybody have any thoughts on how, how the Seraphon are spending the Age of Myth? Well, so they're they're doing a few things, but one one that I thought was particularly interesting. Um, so there's a there's a bit in here in the Age of Myth where. Um, as you mentioned, Sigmar is sort of doing his thing, uplifting tribes from the realms. Um, but but in, in that time, it, it mentions that the Slan were choosing certain tribes uh, to grant them additional like magic or technology to rise, raise up specific groups in the mortal realms, um, ostensibly because that is part of their greater plan. Um, as, as they are trying to sort of lay the foundations for the future battles against chaos. Um, which I think is really interesting that it's sort of saying that the Seraphon in some ways decided like the trajectory of the early, uh, at least somewhat the trajectory of the early ages of uh, the realms, um, which obviously is a big change uh, in the history here a little bit. Yeah. Well, we talk about how, um, like, as time goes forward, uh, in real life, as we as we get more books and we learn more about the moral realms at, at large, um, and the timeline sort of moves forward, when these new battle tomes come out, we have opportunities to look backwards in the past and sort of pepper what we thought we knew already and sort of interject um, in fun, clever ways, how um, some of these armies could have been important back then. And this is another example of, all right, well, we thought we knew kind of how how civilizations grew um, and were sort of cemented in the moral realms back in the Age of Myth. But here, here's another take or another perspective, or here's something we didn't know about before, but it's very plausible and makes a lot of sense. And this is an, another example of that, which is always fun to fun to see. I think, Paul, well, you were going to say something. 
Yeah, I think the interesting thing is that what this actually allows is because the Slan are the people who are making these decisions about what's going forward and the Slan were in the old world, it gives some credence to the idea that the civilizations that arose in the mortal realms would bear a striking resemblance to the civilizations that existed in the old world, right? Um, and this is an interesting theme that I think is going to bear fruit later on in time is that the lizard men are this stable continuum, in my mind at least, of what is happening. They were fighting chaos in the old world. They're fighting chaos in the mortal realms now. And they are this stable point of reference that it's interesting to me how they can watch what was an elf in the old world and what's an elf in the new world and decide whether or not that elf is changed whether it's for chaos or against chaos right um and because of those little interesting decisions i think it adds credence to keeping most of those model lines from the old world at least in a narrative sense okay sure um i like one of the parallels of having the um seraphon go back in time or not go not, just in back in the age of myth and like sort of uh, imparting technologies to like these primitive people and sort of selecting mm-hmm. who succeeds and stuff. It's kind of kind of like the conspiracy theories that people think that the pyramids were built like <laughs> yeah. by aliens. That's true. Um, That's true. Same, same kind that. of deal. Uh, which is one well, seraphon like uh, ziggurats, which are kind of like pyramids. I'm just saying. Yeah. Two two together. Um, and also in that little story, Phil, that you'd mentioned, it's cool that it goes on to say that like some of those societies that they start to like uh, foster. Um, like those, the, the descendants of the societies are some of the first like storm cast as well. So it's almost, yeah. you gotta wonder, like, <laughs> did they know this is Did they know that that was going to be a thing eventually? Um, cause they could have, um, which is kind of cool. For one of the other cool stories is the binding, the, the astro matrix. Uh, so this is the ley lines that I was talking about a little bit earlier. There still are these native, um, veins of magic that exist within the mortal realms and there are these nexuses of magic where the ley lines cross that are especially potent and the seraphons start to take over and command these ley lines right um and start to unleash their grand plan as it were um so there was a there was a cool re-upping of the old lore but at the same time clarifying a lot of how the mortal realms works i think was which is really interesting to me um just the idea of ley lines and conquering and nexuses is just a super cool concept in my mind so and i think an interesting thing to sort of interject here is that they uh they mention in here that realm gates were created by the old ones which is this really weird thing of like, okay, so the old ones existed in both places somehow, but either way, it, it's suggested that these ley lines in the realms are sort of the channels through which the realm gates work, which is partially why the Seraphon find them to be so important because they have miniaturized versions of realm gates inside their ships which is how they can teleport their troops all around their realms um and so uh i i just think it's interesting that again we were able to look back and say okay here's these things that have existed since the beginning of the age of sigmar um in the game and that it's like okay you can teleport between realms and that's how people travel but like giving it this sort of 
rooting in some sort of history that we didn't have previously. Um, we'll talk about more like the old ones probably a little bit more a little bit later. But I, I want to point out that I don't know that it ever definitively says the old ones made the realm gates. It seems to have been left open ended, and we can talk more about um, that later. Are you saying there's an unreliable narrator, Aaron? Is that quite, what I'm hearing? Quite possibly. Um, yeah, that I is hear cool some. I hear someone flipping through the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll a, we'll talk a, about it. Yeah, a cool um, nod back to the old world though, because the gate at the pole of the, the top of the, the old world was built by the old ones. And it was a gate, a realm gate of some sort that was supposed to siphon off the excess magic that ended up allowing chaos into the old world. Um, so it's not a, a hundred, hundred degree turn, 180 turn from the old, old. It's not a 180 degree flip from the old lore. And I think it ties in nicely with the way that the Mortal Realms works. So that was a that was a super cool touch that I really appreciated. I wanted to come back real quick because I think as we get into talking about um, you know gods from the stars, their um, ability to move around, binding the astro matrix, um, being able to control realm gates, even change where their destination is, so they can change if a realm gate gate is typically static between Akshi and and Garan they can use that same realm gate to go someplace else. And I think this is where I feel like, and and I don't have infinite knowledge of the old world lore, but in general, the public knowledge of the Seraphon is that they were a static stuck in the, you know, South American, um, you know, counts as uh, jungle. And I, I can appreciate that they always had a hate for chaos, but they had very little they could do. Chaos was North. They're all the way south. There was never much implicit or explicit story of them clashing with chaos. Um, in the Age of Sigmar, they're not stuck anywhere. They are everywhere. And they're where they want to be. And they are coming after chaos with a focus, which is not anything that was really emphasized in their in the most obvious points of their uh, representation in eighth edition. So I think this is a, to me from, from a point of view of just, you know, looking at them from the, the surface, there's no question that these guys are out for, for, for chaos blood. They can go anywhere. It's almost like they're making up for lost time or like they're making up for maybe a shortcoming from the old world. They're like, all right, well we sat back and let the world crumble. So like, we're not going to make that same mistake again, which uh, is super cool. Well, I mean, so this is, this is probably not the perfect place to put this, but at the old Helenhammer podcast, there was always this joke about how did the lizard men get to Bretonia, right? How did the Skaven get to Cathay, where they had all these battles in the old world? And Dan Helen always used to say, oh, there was a portal. Oh, there was a portal, right? And in the mortal realms, there literally is a portal. It's called the Realm Gate. And... It, it's hilarious to me that this is actually a great explanation for how everything works and it is now hardwired into the mortal realms for why one race can get to where another race is all the time and for any reason. Yeah, it's it's weird that like the realms are now bigger than they ever were or bigger than the old world ever was and yet it's even easier to get to wherever you want to be. Which yeah, is, and yet no uh, place is safe. Yeah, I will say I wish they had credited the Seraphon for creating the realm gates. As opposed to, like a mysterious oh, old race. Oh, I, I, that's an interesting point. I would disagree personally, but that's that's a fair point to make for sure. 
Uh, some mortal scholars believe that the Salon were even partially responsible for the construction of the first Rome gates. Anyways, um, <laughs> there we go. Uh, so that, that's basically the the Age of Myth summed up. Uh, the Seraphon doing mysterious stuff, helping when they need to help, um, looking for or bolt or uh, what would you call it? Um, fixating on this this Astra Matrix. Uh, but we all know uh, how history went, went and that the Age of Chaos was coming. And it turns out I think the Seraphon probably knew at some point too. Um, and when Chaos finally reached. Uh, sort of their their strongest point and the, the age of chaos started spilling over the mortal realms um all hell basically was breaking loose uh what the seraphon did at this time was fairly interesting it's actually kind of related to phil's story from from before is that a, a conclave of uh slan like uh, star masters um all got together and decided that they were going to guide their forces and sort of drop them in like strategic places around um, places of really like immense power in order to sort of distract chaos and draw chaos and sort of separate them and and put them where they wanted uh, them in the moral realms with the express goal of allowing the civilizations or the citizens of these realms to boogie to the nearest Rome gate to his ear and escape in time. And for the most part, no one knew that they were doing this or or no one can sort of credit their safety to the actions taken uh, by the Seraphon, but they did it. And uh, because of that, who knows how many lives were saved um, because of the actions that they took and the the distractions that they were causing uh, in the moral realms. Um, So how cool is that? I think that like they also had a hand in, um, rescuing all those those populations uh, in in this year. Nice. So I think I think it's really cool um, to sort of again sort of show how they've been there this whole time, but not really knowingly that they've been there. Um, but I I do want to point out that like it's mentioned multiple times in here that the uh, the salon are like they have these aeons long plans and they're like shifting these small you know they're playing this eternal chess game with chaos and so generally when they're doing things like this it sounds like their their point of doing it isn't because they care in any way about the lives that they're saving it's because they need them to do things to slow down chaos down the road it's like we we need sigmar and all of his folks to live because they're going to be important to the great plan later on um it's very cold and calculating. Sometimes it's easy to ascribe, like, you know, like in the same way that people ascribe like emotions to like animals that are obviously not having those emotions. Like it's almost the same way for these, these seraphon to think, oh, like, oh, they're so, they're nice and cool, man. They're, they're, they're friends. No, they don't, they don't care about you at all. <laughs> no. They're just doing what yeah. they got to do. Well, I think there's a couple examples of that where, well, one, it's, it's kind of a step beyond minority report, like the idea of predicting a crime. Um, where they're not, they don't, they're not necessarily judging where a race is going to chaos or not going to chaos. It's whether or not, even if they're never going to chaos and that group of elves is in the way of them doing something now, they might as well be part of chaos to them. Like just eliminate that roadblock so they can get what they need to do to get the dominoes in line. Um, and then the other side is there's, um, you know, I think we talk about it in one of the, uh, and, and probably a similar throwback because you were mentioning it, Paul is, you know, and we'll talk about them later, but the Sotek um, do integrate with, with culture. And, and as you say that, Aaron, I'm thinking of it more as like they're mimicking, like they mimic what people do. They, you know, um, 
I think we get a little bit of that in like Jurassic Park where they like, you know, anyway, like just this idea that they're not, they're not really human or even like there's nothing about them that's even close to human, but they can act the part sometimes. Yeah. Well, cause they know that it, in doing so it will advance their agenda. So like, again, mm-hmm. they do what they have to do. Yeah. And I think this is a very interesting story, like coloration really of the story of the retreat into Azir. Because the question then becomes, did Sigmar save the people of the realms? Or did the Seraphon, right? Did the Swan save the people of the realms? And there is this feeling now in current time of the mortal realms that Sigmar abandoned them. And now he's coming back. But there is this like sense of pride for having existed within the mortal realms. But is that feeling of abandoning actually Sigmar's fault? Or is it the Seraphon and the Slan? Right? It it colors that story heavily. And I think that's a super interesting uh, little take. Not going to say it. <laughs> Be the judge of that. Uh, any other fun Age of Chaos stories? Um, what happens after that? Well, so one that's maybe less important from like a like grand arcing narrative perspective, but to touch on the um, there's there's a bit here called the blooded claws where they talk about the uh, the Coatl's claw constellation, which um, we can talk about them a little bit more later. But they're basically like all Saurus, or they're primarily anyway Saurus instead of being led by a Slan. So they're much more savage than the normal groups, um, and they talk about um, like just their hatred of uh Skaven and there was a meeting of clan pestilence and some wanderers and of course they just like went to town on the rats because they just absolutely hate them and killed them all and at the end of it the wanderers were like trying to thank them and saying like oh man we were saved like the gods saved us by sending these guys but like it was to the point where they were at such a like bloodlust that they just kept killing and they just killed all the wood elves too because <laughs> the rats had them uh like up into such a fury so it's like um yeah these guys aren't necessarily good in the sense that we might think of as good the like they're sort of more of an just an extermination force i don't like you laughing at, at a bunch of wood elf deaths that's not that's not cool well i mean it it's it's more just the like the complete lack of uh, feeling and control that these guys have. It's like they they just didn't even didn't even register that they were killing things. They weren't really their enemies. They just without control, the Saurus are just murder machines. Yeah, when it's a weird juxtaposition compared to the Slan, which are like, I don't know, the definition of control and patience, right? Like the, the fact that like their leadership is such a, I don't know, mindful uh, bunch to think that like the forces at their disposal could fall into such a, a bloodlust is is um, again a, a, a jarring. Uh, uh, can't think of another word for juxtaposition because there it is again. Um, but for the Age of Chaos, I think these last two aren't super in- interesting and like like so the the blood and scale story that they have in here is really just them talking about like. Uh, killing daughters of Cain because uh, they are like too close to 
powers of chaos in Ulu, and that it, it mentions. I think like the whole point of that story is that as as the daughters stab some of them instead of blood there's just like light pouring out of them um so it's like just to emphasize them being imbued with the power of azir all right so um yeah i mean that that i guess sums up the age of chaos it's it's seraphon doing what they can um to uh strike back against against chaos right like it's chaos is sort of ascendant but um the seraphon are still present uh in the moral realms or at least mortal realms adjacent, um, and striking out uh, where they can, um, and making do with what forces they have available to, you know, uh, protect their interests and and push forward the the great plan as best they can. Um, but eventually, as we all know, fortunately, uh, the gates of Azir do open back up. And uh, as Paul, Paul, do you want to say it? Unreliable. I'm looking narrative. for. I'm looking for a lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. Oh, lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. Yep. This the stormcast come a striking, and uh, they're they're bringing the fight back to to chaos. Um, and it, it's I guess finally the Seraphon have allies again, um, fighting, uh, uh, to to push back, um, chaos. Man, that's not exactly true. More pawns on the table. Yeah, yeah, they're not. They're not. I, I, I strike what I just said. They are not, in fact, allies, but rather they're they're sort of fighting with common cause. Um, but the book makes it a point to say that um, they rarely do work together, despite the fact they're literally both, you know, coursing with lightning uh, in their veins. Um, and so they'll they'll give you a, each other a, a knowing head nod, maybe a salute here and there, um, but rarely are they um, literally on the same side of a, a battlefield fighting, uh, shoulder to shoulder. Just wait till black library focuses on romance. Ooh. <laughs> when oh. a man, uh, loves a lizard. Mm-hmm. So that's the, uh, that's when the heavens open. That's the story from the age of Sigmar. Did you guys have, um, any pre chime of tribulation stories you wanted to talk about? Um, I would like to talk about the fleets to send. Um, this is a cool little narrative that actually makes its way into the rules and is super fascinating to me because it, it pairs together the lore that we had at the beginning of Age of Sigmar with the lore that we have now. Um, and so when we're talking about High Azir, where all of these ziggurats are flying, these spaceships, as it were, they absorbed the power of Azir. And when they would descend in battle, right, the power of Azir would be present in all of their seraphon warriors during the age of sigmar they actually descend into the realms and so those ziggurats would actually come down and crash land very nicely pleasantly land doesn't matter within the realms and then they would set up what they what are called these realm shaper engines which is the the terrain piece that comes with the army and wherever they are, they would create this jungle environment around a perimeter of the ziggurat. And within this jungle environment, they would have all of these amazing creatures and monsters um, that would become inhabitants of this area. And the difference is, is that once they land in the realms, they take on some aspect of the realm that they're in over the realm that they are from. And so we have these two specific designations. We have the Starborn, which are those which are from Azir, and then we have the Coalesced, which are those who are now in the realms. 
And there is a difference between the two of them, whereas one of them is Azir. If you land in the realm of fire, then you're going to take on some of that nature when you have spawning pools create new Seraphon in your Ziggurat. It's a really interesting uh, dichotomy that really helps to weave those two narratives together, but also makes for a really interesting uh, choice narratively, whether or not you're going to be these super space aliens of magic, or you're going to be these more material beings of the realms. Now, isn't that, that does seem consistent though, too, in that if their spawning pools in Azir took on star magic, uh, you know, when they go to any other realms, they're going to take on aspects of, of that realm. So that, Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it's an interesting distinction or it's, I'll be the judge of that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you will. thank you. Um, and I'll be looking for your, uh, your vote. Um, the, <laughs> but that, that it, it makes it special that the, there's the ones that are, you know, called of starlight. Um, but just thinking that, you know, if, if they go to Gur, they're just, they're they're soaking up the energy either way, right? And and it does mention I don't remember exactly where I I would have to look it up again, but that uh, so there's still there's still Azerite energy even in the ones that are living in the other realms, but as they live there, they absorb more of the magic of the realm that they're in, and so they become like infused with magic from both worlds. Um, and so they start to take on new aspects, but but the Azerite energy is always somewhat present. It's just not as prevalent as the ones who just live in the ships above Azir. You know, it's because home is where the heart is. <laughs> well, the interesting point is that they clarify that spawnings still exist, right? We have this teleportation down from the Starborn, but as far as the coalesced are concerned, there are spawning pools that do release spawnings. And this is definitely a mechanic that still exists within the army for the Seraphon, which I thought was a, a great callback and a, a good clarification. Very, very cool. Um, so this is uh, basically the, the Seraphon reintroducing themselves in the moral realms and although maybe not allying with uh, the other sort of citizens or, you know, residents of the moral realms is still... Um, they're having a more uh, active role um, in fighting back chaos, especially now that they're being sort of bolstered by the the uh, Stormcast Eternals who are sort of fighting on the same sides, if, if not necessarily uh, shoulder to shoulder. Um, things seem to be going well, quote unquote, sh- shoulder shrug. <laughs> um, but then things get immensely worse when the time of tribulations and uh, the soul wars hits. And uh, as we found in some of the other battle tones post soul wars, um, uh, no one is immune to the effects of the uh, actions taken by Nagash. I think, um, you know, it was mentioned before too, Phil mentioned it, how like how their actions are measured in eons or millennium or whatever. Like they, the, you know, what's happening right this second uh, everywhere is less uh, important than like the long-term plan and those step-by-steps. And I think they say specifically <laughs> Nagash's plan was so such a long play and so like tediously minute in its like step after step that they didn't even see it coming. Uh that the Slan who who only think in, you know, 100 year increments or something like that. Um 
didn't see Nagash's long plan coming, which is just, I love it. I think that it's, it's fun having, cause there, it, there could be this thing where they, they're so like, um, high level that you, you couldn't ever pull one over on them. So it's nice to have just something where there's a blind spot or, or something like that for them. And I, I think they mentioned somewhere again, I, I feel like it's in here. I don't remember exactly what it, like the exact wording was, but I, I think it's basically like their plan is so focused on chaos. They weren't thinking about Nagash. And then it's like, we're just focused on the chaos gods and we're going to do our thing to stop them. And then all of a sudden Nagash is like, and here's my plan. And they're like, whoa, death's doing <laughs> stuff. What? Yeah, who's this? Who's this guy? <laughs> Nagash. N- 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 Am I saying that right? I've never heard of him. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I think that it will it will circle back on that at the, the sort of the final point at this timeline because they they that has some ramifications on it. Obviously, um, is wild that someone could be surprised, and and that kind of speaks to the importance and the shock that comes along with um, the uh, Soul Wars type era to think that like yeah, these all powerful uh, slons like e- even they missed what was going on. So it sort of justifies the what over two years that we've been talking about this thing for now, like it, it really dr- maybe puts a finer point on the fact that like, yeah, uh, it is, was a monumentous um, event. Yeah. And the, the, the cool thing I like is that it, it has a specific effect for the lizard men that is kind of isolated from the rest. They do have the, you know, Oh, there's ghosts showing up on the starships and we lost some of our slon because they were taken over by these ghosts. But uh, for a narrative reason, um, it's very important because it actually jerked the Astro Matrix Arcane out of the order that it was in. So those ley lines have now shifted, right? So places that were nexuses are no longer nexuses, and places that were completely unimportant have now become intensely important. So Nagash, because he was ignored, is literally allowed to shift the Great Plan into a completely different space. Right, we're in new territory here. It's kind of in the same way that, like the Karajan overlords, like they had all those those claims on um, their aether gold uh, veins in the sky, and then like they all just got moved and shifted, and like, oh crap, we got to do this all over again. You got to redraw lines and things. Uh, the Seraphine are like, yeah, no, I I feel you, man. That that's rough. Um, it's uh, interesting stuff. I'll, furthermore, they make it a point to say that um, that everybody sort of harnessing a lot of those endless spells, like start, like throw off like the, the magic balance of the moral realms too. Uh, so like, there's another element of like magic being askew kind of. And the fact that like the Nadir in Shyish has been shifted, like that also is like poking a hole in the, uh, the matrix. So like all in all, uh, for folks who are very finely tuned into the magic of the moral realms, uh, they really were thrown for a loop. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, one of the fun stories is called the war on the rim um, as it uh, sort of puts or pits the Seraphon versus another new or newly discussed army, the uh, Osiarch Bone Reapers. If you'll recall that episode, we talked about the Null Myriad, which is a sort of a subfaction of those Bone Reapers that are um, uniquely not immune, but resistant to magic. And so because of that, they can kick it uh, on the realm's edge of a lot of different realms. Um, and so there is a subset of uh, Seraphon known as the Thunder Lizards, and we're going to talk about them a little bit. But they have been not hiding, but 
isolating themselves a little bit, protecting and hiding um, a number of old old ones like machinery and inventions and, and technology. And so now that these null myriads uh, have sort of popped up, um, the, the two are now at odds, um, fight, waging a war, waging battles on um, the edges of any number of realms out there, uh, sort of un benounced to the residents um, that are sort of living in more central locations on those realms. So there's these these battles, these wars, these campaigns that are being um, waged that no one really ever knows about um, between, uh, again, these these forces that are living in this inhospitable um, places uh, in the realms, which is kind of cool. It's like these like hidden wars that um, nobody has any idea are, are going on, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, does anybody else have any other uh, time of tribulations type stories they want to talk about. Um, I just wanted to mention too one of the other things that they blame uh, for for their uh, their ley lines and and stuff not working well is uh, the bad moon uh, getting a little too, little little too excited. So I, I thought it was funny that this little try hard is uh, <laughs> that again another case where the 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 grots and and grot kind or whatever. Uh, are are punching above their weight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've got like a moon just like scattering about, like like messing up their like their celestial like designs and constellations and stuff, which is kind of fun. Um, another, I guess, another example of I, you can really tell that the writers of this book really were making an effort to interject the seraphon in, in a number of places or have other things then affect the seraphon, like to really. Um, weave them into the the moral realms because one of the stories I won't get into it is, but like apparently the Seraphon had a big uh, involvement in the um, orb. What is it called? The orb infer- infernia. Yeah, infernia. Yeah, orb yep. Yeah, from the uh, the the um, malign portents like era um, of that campaign that we were doing, and then we we shot a time cannon or something, and then the Seraphon like popped back into existence. Anyways, it was just they're they're slotted into a number of fun. Um, stories that we are familiar with um kind of a revisionist history in a way uh but that brings us to to the present day with this history sort of under our belt i guess i'll ask you guys what where do we find the seraphon now like what what is their goals what's their what's the the situation they find themselves in um what what are they after now Um, has anything changed (laughs) okay cool all right that's eric's answer um beat that uh, so if I were going to have my own constellation of Slan, I would call him Jefferson. So I could call it Jefferson Starship. Mm, okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, so that's O for 2 for getting at the answer I'm looking for. Let's see if Phil's got it. The plans that the Seraphon are trying to um, enact now is they've realized like we got caught off guard we weren't thinking broadly enough. We weren't being active enough in the great plan on a broad scale. Like they're very focused. And so now um, it says that they're going to commence a new era of aggression in the mortal realms to uh, sort of recapture the Astro Matrix, get these ley lines back under their control and, and really sort of stick it to uh, all these other groups that are messing with the great plan. Phil, can I tell you something? Yeah. That's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> oh, well. I knew it. I'm I, glad yeah. that I could help. I can't believe oh. you weren't looking for Jefferson Starship. That was gold. 
That was the second, that was my second, well, it was the thing that I didn't know I was looking for. Um, but yeah, but like whenever we read these battle tomes, the question on the table is always, what What are they doing now? Like what, how do they, how do they, if they do push the story forward, how do they push the story forward? Or if not, how are they existing in the present day? Like in the present timeline, what, what, what is their activity or what, what are they trying to do? And so like that, we have now uh, identified their, their present um, purpose uh, in the mortal realms, and it sort of justifies why they would be fighting everybody now, right? Like if if they were so focused on chaos before, um, why would they be fighting against a, a night hunt or night hunt army or a, a gloom spite army? Um, so like there they have their reason to to be doing so. Well, and we have this interesting dichotomy now between the starborn and the coalesced. Oh, you want to talk about starborn and coalesced? Let's do it. Yeah. So the starborn again are these. Azir tainted creations that are sent by the Slan in order to fulfill the great plan, right? Like they seem to be still very much pure agents of the Slan that are sent down to the realms in order to cold bloodedly, pun intended, um, either correct or create the grand plan of the slan. And on the other hand, we have these coalesced, which are literally within the realms. Um, I imagine there has to be some aspect of the slan of these coalesced temples are absorbing some of the magic of the realms in order to hopefully get a better idea of what's going on in everywhere else besides the age of chaos. Right. Um, and get an idea of what every other army is. And these guys are definitely as well fighting along with the same grand plan. But it was explicitly mentioned that not all the Slan agree with what the intention of the grand plan is. Um, and this will become an interesting dichotomy when we talk later about the constellations. Um, because there is far more of an aspect of aggression in the coalesce than there are in the starborn right the starborn are kind of this like razor that is sent down to cut off a path but the coalesced tend to be more of a cleaver or some other more blunt instrument that is intended to control an area as opposed to necessarily correct the grand plan at least in my mind from my understanding of the reading yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that that, that point about um, the Slan not all agreeing um, on what exactly the great, the grand, the great plan is, um, I think is an important one in that. Um, so the Slan uh, were birthed by the old ones. That's when their the spawning of the Slan took place. And there were multiple spawnings and like each subsequent spawning has like is like one more degree removed from the old ones. And pretty much there are no slan left that had any direct interaction with the old ones. And so they're trying to remember what the original plan was. And so they all remember it just slightly differently. Um, and they even mention uh, in passing that like this this even leads to conflict within the Seraphon, where some view the way in which 
some of the coalesced are going about uh, enacting the great plan that it's like antithesis to how they're doing it. And they're saying, well, one of us has to be right. And they end up destroying one of the other groups. Can I, can I jump in real quick? Um, let's have a little uh, listener question pause for a second because I feel like we're touching on some stuff here. Um, you guys are you're you're, you're highlighting a, a question raised by uh, a member of our Discord, uh, Timmy Mac. Um, hey, listener, if if you want to ask questions about uh, any of the shows that we do, um, the way to do so is to be a member of our Discord at www.themoralrealms.com/discord and literally just wait around all the time. Uh, for me to forget that we're recording a, uh, an episode and then remember at the last minute and then ask everybody in the Discord channel, hey, do you have any questions for us? Uh, lit- literally like an hour before the show. Um, but anyways, Timmy Mac, let's get back to Timmy Mac's question. Um, he asks, given the fact that there are now two types, quote unquote, of Seraphon, would there be an in-lore reason why the two may fight each other? And I think you're 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 answering that right now, uh, Phil. And that, like, yeah, the different interpretations of the great plan could possibly lead them to blows if one uh, group or one constellation felt that they were right and that the other group, the other constellation, was doing things incorrectly and needed to be wiped out because it was a a danger to the the great plan. That that right there would be prime reason for two groups um, of Seraphon to be at each other's throats. Do you agree? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's, that's, I believe, pretty much verbatim what it says in the book is that they, they, one group will see that like the actions of the other are going to disrupt the great plan. And so they have to fight them, they have to stop them, because otherwise chaos could win. And they can't have that. Well, God, no. Um, and not only is it important that, if, you know, for the good of the great plan that they sort of eliminate some sort of deviation from that great plan, but furthermore, it also has an importance in that um, it almost is like a survival of the fittest kind of thing or like a, a, a Darwinism a little bit. And that like if two f- opposing forces do end up coming to blows, um, the idea that like the strongest is going to end up winning um, and because they are sort of like bestial creatures in a sense, like that's also important that they want to make sure that the stronger army, the stronger your war band or whoever it is um, ends up coming out on top. And it sort of uh, filters or um, winnows out the, the, the weaker um, of the Seraphon because they, they do also want to, you know, remain strong. That's also important as well, which is kind of a fun, you know, I wouldn't have thought uh, that would be the case, but, but here we are. Yeah, I think that leads into another question from Frothy Cat is, does the lore cover what different realms of Coalesce might look like or ways that should culturally diverge from the Starborn types? Um, so I think the Starborn types, number one, they specifically glow with the light of Azir. It's, it's called out and mentioned that that is an appearance that the Starborn have. And they seem to be completely isolated within their starships in higher Azir. So they are completely indoctrinated, taught, whatever word you want to use, to the Slan that they are with. But the Coalesce are completely different in the fact that they exist within the realms. They live their life in the realms. And so they take on that aspect and they lose that glow of Azir on their physical body. But because they do interact with society, even if it is just in war, there is more than just, I'm sending you to do war now, and you know exactly what I'm intending and how it's going to work. There are accidental skirmishes. There are other things that impact the Seraphon that are coalesced that the 
Starborn, I don't think, would have any concept of understanding, right? Defending territory is not something that Starborn would ever have to do. But the Kobolds have to do this on a daily basis. And especially when we get into the monsters, like there's more of a understanding that this is their native land. Whereas Starborn don't have any conception, to my understanding, that this is where they belong. This is just where they are. Does that make sense? Yeah. I do think, uh, I was just going to say that they do talk about how the, even the, the Starborn, um, in terms of like protecting things and being like their spawning pools are a thing that they feel like they have to protect um, and are aware that them being up in this in space is advantageous to keeping um, other things away. Although um, maybe one of the stories that was in uh, age of chaos, maybe was it when the Skaven did board one of the ships uh, through gnaw holes. It does sound familiar. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's, there have been cases where even, even in the, in a zero, they're not, not totally safe. And I, th- so I think, uh, I think I like the sentiment overall, just in the point of like, they do have to watch their backs and they do have to be cognizant of their resources uh, in mm-hmm. a way that is similar to the coalesced. Uh, we've been talking about how like they're, they're different, but um, that's not to say that they don't have their similarities and, and aren't, you know, actually fighting on the, you know, sort of the same side. Froth the Cat had another question where he wanted to know, uh, do they have uh, good reasons to work together um, or do the coalesce still follow the plans of the old ones? I think that that's true. And then um, related to that, Travis uh, from the Discord also was asking, is there any lore about the coalesce and the celestial working together in any way? Or are they kept pretty separate? Um, I think oftentimes they are separate, but that's not the default like it, it doesn't mean that they have to remain separate um one of the stories in this in the timeline here actually it's that last one talking about like their goals um in the present day to sort of strike out and be more aggressive in the moral realms it was a decision made by both um the starborn and the coalesced to sort of work together and um strike out and sort of reassert themselves uh, in the moral realms. so uh, they do have good reason, especially if their interpretations of the great plan sort of align amongst different constellations. As long as that's the case, um, they have no reason to be at odds, but rather are, are more than willing to um, work together uh, to achieve achieve their goals, which is uh, reassuring at the very least. Um, and then another question as it relates to Starborn Coalesced, uh, Tristan, Tomb King Tristan, uh, friend of the show. Um, he wants to know, how do you feel about the dual aspects of the book, the coalesced versus the starborn? Um, are they, uh, as to how they are represented in the lore? Is it 50, 50 or is it, um, or is it more leaning on one over the other? Do you guys have any thoughts on that one? I think lore wise, the starborn have been existing in the realms for far longer, but there's also a lot more interesting details about the coalesced because they are in all the different realms. And I think, um, like the coalesced are the the way to one give the seraphon sort of they needed to have some skin in the game, right? I think they have more scales, probably. Well, probably, <laughs> probably that's fair. Although, uh, you know, speaking skinks, of scales and fairness, skinks don't have a whole lot of scales. But, um, you know, when you're flying around between realms, you don't have to really care beyond like the needing the astro matrix and stuff like that 
what all is going on in the realms, but by setting up these colonies, and, and this is another thing that I think is interesting in that it sort of ties the two together, is that the Starborn are seeding the Coalesced. Like, they always started out as Starborn. Um, and and so it's like, you can imagine that they they keep adding more, potentially, as they spread out through the realms. So it, there's sort of always this this tie in some ways. But but it helps give them a reason to sort of be involved in the overarching story. And then also um, it allows them to move the story forward for this Herophon because otherwise it's sort of like, you know, part of the problem with the original battle tome was sort of like, yeah, there's Seraphon, they've got spaceships, there's Slon on them. They, you know, use their magic to create the lizards that fight. And then after the fights are over, they just go back to their spaceships and that's kind of it. Um, and so there, there needed to be some sort of mechanism to say like, well, how do we move that narrative forward? And I think that the coalesced naturally gives you a way to tie them in to everything else that's going on in the realms. Yeah. It anchors them, um, and, uh, like sort of the experience that we're, we're used to and makes them makes a fairly alien race that much less alien in, in a sense. I mean, they're still jungle lizard demons, but, um, but still not, not demons. Um, you had t- talked about the, the spaceships. I mean, obviously we've been talking about the spaceships quite a bit. They're in the ziggurats. They've got their spaceships. They're, they have the spawning pools. Um, do you guys have anything you want to talk about before I start asking some listener questions about that whole shebang? Anything else you want to add on that front? Um, just a quick reflection that when the, the Seraphon decided that they were focusing too much on chaos, um, that it was exclaimed, "We're in a ziggurat, uh, and it's time to change." <laughs> yeah, that's a, a direct a direct quote from the. It's, from it's the right in the book. Outcome. Yeah, yep. Look it up. I'm people. coming up with better intro lines as we go through. <laughs> if at any if at any point you want me to slot one in, I will do that for you. All right, I feel you. like it's an outro line at this point, but that's fair. Yeah. Um, Ned did ask the question: Are there different spawnings of warriors like WHFB days? Or do they do something different in terms of skin coloring and or aggression of preferences of tactics? Um, there are definitely still spawnings. Um, we talked about the fans of Sotek before, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later as well. They are specifically called out as the same coloration that was in Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Uh, but I would have to say that the way that they describe spawnings is not quite the same because previously the spawnings would basically be all Saurus or all Skinks or some combination thereof. And it is called out specifically in the lore that you can have spawnings of Stegodon and spawnings of Pastilodons or Carnosaurs or of one individual warrior. From my understanding of the way that it was before, you would have a warrior that would rise from within a spawning. And that is not the way that it is anymore. If it's a particularly powerful individual, their spawning would be just them themselves. Phil, did you have anything to add to that? Um, I most generally, I think I agree. Uh, I think I think the spawning pools that maybe people are asking about that sounds at least my reading was that that is still skinks and Saurus, but it was sort of like depending on what, it's sort of like they could dial in a recipe and like that would determine what they were going to get out. Um, 
and so like if they're like, oh well, we need we need knights that today, so we need some Saurus that are good at handling cold ones. So we're gonna you know crank up the pools and get some Saurus that know how to handle cold ones. Um, but um, it also mentions that they have like the skinks run these spawning areas of eggs of the monsters that they use on the battlefield as well. So my understanding is that they do spawn the monsters, but it's not through spawning pools. They just sort of have very controlled breeding. It seems Um, they didn't go into much depth into how that works. Exactly. Can I, can I quote, can I read a quote from the book real quick? Uh, most most constellations have racks upon racks of stegodon eggs stored within their ziggurats, but the greatest spawning pools are also capable of producing fully grown beasts instantly when fed enough power. Ah, well, I stand corrected. In the coalesced, um, in the coalesced like um, landings and um, kind of placements and that sort of stuff, they talk a little bit about skink spawning pools being kind of in the perimeters of the surface where they may put their saurus kind of deep into the temple that's buried underground as kind of a, and they're inside patrolling and then they'd only come out when they're needed. So it sounded like they did, you could set up designated spawning pools for different um, needs. Now that I'm just reading this book, Eric, to answer your far previous question, um, what is a group of skinks called? Um, Apparently, Spawnkin. Uh, he chirruped an order before he and his Spawnkin disappeared back into the steaming jungle depths. Wait, are you telling me you're just literally reading this book right now, Aaron? And you've never read yep. it before. Yeah. <laughs> He's just yeah. making it up this whole time, guys. You see, you see, there's Slan. They look like frogs, and they uh, drive spaceships. <laughs> and this is this is Eric. And the Slan said, "Who's ready for a Spawnkin?" Oh, <laughs> okay. you, you can keep uh, them in. I'll tell you um, what, j- just do a bunch of them and I'll, I'll, I'll pick the best one. <laughs> I, I think um, one more thing to mention about spawnings. Um, so they do, they do touch on that. The, uh, the different constellations do all seem to have different colorings that are specific to those spawnings. Um, and so like, you can see this in the art. Sometimes there's ones that have like, uh, like a red crest all the way down their back, um, starting at their head. Some of them have yellow. Um, some of them are, uh, let's see, what are some of the other colors? I don't know. But, but the point being that like certain constellations have certain color schemes, at least according to the like, uh, heavy metal paint jobs. Um, so there, there is some, some credence to show that, uh, depending on which groups, are spawning them, they are going to look different. And so they are distinct between the different constellations. Paul, you had written skink barrios here. What could you have possibly meant? Uh, Explain yourself. So this is a carryover from the old world into the new world. Um, uh, The skink barrios are an interesting concept that was very... Well, I'll be the judge of that. There, uh, spelled out in Warhammer Fantasy Battle, uh, there is this class system um, of the skinks within the Seraphon society where the especially powerful skinks become priests. But there's actually like six different kinds of priests in this book. And then they also have skink chiefs, but there's like three or four different kinds of skink chiefs. And the vast majority of the skinks are just kind of normal whatever, right? 
the the skinks are still very much portrayed as the intelligent half of the seraphon and the saurus are more like the dumb brute strength there is some intelligence but it is far more based in war than it is based in like understanding so in the absence of the slan or more appropriately in the in the purpose of the slan the skinks are the ones who really run society but within the skink hierarchy themselves there is this class system where there are those skinks who are literally constantly fawning over the slan at all times and then they they go down in order from there of this is the one who carries the message from the skink priest the star priest to the normal uh skinks etc etc to the skink chiefs who are just about leading war to the skinks themselves so the barrios are these outerlying structures that are not a part of the ziggurat but they are a part of the society that the skinks grow themselves um the the saurus tend to just patrol and i'm sure they have homes of some sort but it's not specifically or explicitly mentioned um but the society itself is formed primarily from these different classes of skinks and just the word barrio has an implication um that I think is really interesting to investigate when we're talking about Seraphon society. Cool. Uh, first of all, you just said the word skink a lot of times. Second of all, um, you've, ins- you've uh, reminded me of a series of questions asked by another discord uh, member and listener of the show. Uh, Tomb King Tristan had some more, um, a couple skink related questions. Um, one of them was, uh, why do you think a skink led army would go to war? Does anybody have any thoughts on that one? Well, uh, the easy answer is that because they believe it's part of the grand plan and they're acting on behalf of the Slan. Ooh, um, wrong. Actually, the right answer was to get to the other side. Ooh, yeah. Of uh-huh. the realm? Mm-hmm. There you mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I showed them. There, <laughs> I stand corrected. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I think they talk a lot about how the skinks are, like, although second in command to the Slans, they still have quite a bit of autonomy and oftentimes have their own opportunities to interpret the great plan is as they i mean they're they're like transcribing and translating a lot of that stuff so um it's not uncommon for skinks to either have their own decision making process or they're able to enact the the, the slans um goals and in doing so like they, they could lead their army uh, to go to war i mean like paul said there's like a billion different like hero type skinks and any number of them could be uh inspiring their forces to march off phil did you have any skink war related thoughts well, I think um, it's another tie-in to the old world, right? Um, we know that, so like Paul mentioned earlier with Sotek, Sotek is one of the skink gods, um, and skinks are generally religious. They have lots of priests. They're led by religious leaders um, primarily, and so they they worship the old ones as gods. And so Sotek is like, an embodiment of one of the old ones. And that's just how the skinks uh, can imagine or like comprehend the old ones. Um, And so they, you know, each of these different gods that the skinks see is like their, their vision of one of the old ones and they will fanatically follow um, these priestly, uh, teachings and so like i mean this is this is reaching back to some warhammer fantasy stuff but like the priests for sotek would be like we need sacrifices to sotek specifically uh 
<laughs> if we can kill him, we need to get some of the um, Skaven. And they'd kill him by, you know, thousands on sacrificial altars. And so skinks would go on these uh, more uh, religiously driven wars rather than necessarily the great plan. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's still is working towards the great plan. But if you were going to just have skinks fighting, you know, on their own, that would probably be the main drivers that the priests would be directing these things and inspiring them by saying like, you know, you're doing this for Sotek or you're doing this for Itza or you're doing this for, you know, whoever. You're just making words up now. Uh, he had another <laughs> question related to uh, Skinks. Um, he wants to know, do oracles feel like a powerful part of the army or just a tacked on bit? Normally we don't get into depth in depth on individual units, but um, I like Tristan, so I'm uh, allowing it. Um, <laughs> what do you guys think? Oracles, do they feel like a powerful part of the army or are they just tacked on? I really like oracles because they are the physical embodiment of the will of the slot, whereas Typically, the priests are kind of represented in the lore, at least to my understanding and reading, as people who are, are humanoids, excuse me, that are trying to transcribe, understand a language that they may not be very competent in, right? Or they might be understanding tablets that have been written eons ago and attempting to translate them, iterate them into something that has meaning. The oracles themselves are the physical embodiment of the slan's will on the battlefield to the point where the slan is allowed to use them as a channel in order to cast spells and to see across the battlefield. Am I right, Phil, or am I like spitting spitballs here? I, I believe that is correct. They, they've added a lot of emphasis on the oracles, um, I think in part because... Um, they didn't necessarily have a place before. They were just another type of skink. Um, like they had this affinity with troglodons, which are these cave-dwelling uh, bipedal monsters that are blind. Um, and they make a big point about like the double tail thing that they both have, and like the, they're marked specially, and like they they rise up specifically as like the only skink from their spawning. Um, and and so there's a lot of emphasis placed on them. I don't I don't know how like I guess when you ask are they a powerful part of the army? I guess from a lore standpoint, it feels like they're fairly important because they're conduits for the slan. But like if you're asking in terms of the game, that's another question. I'm I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure. If you if you look at the hierarchy, like they're right up there with the slan. Like they're literally on yeah. that same like level. Um, mm -hmm. no, now, obviously, we know that they aren't on the same level, but like they are like, um, you know, mouthpieces for the, the salon, perhaps, or yeah. I, guess, I don't know if they talk, but same idea. Um, so they are they are yeah. up there for sure. There's there's even a like, as we get in a lot of the battle tomes, there's like a breakdown of the sort of hierarchy of the army. And like, there's a flow chart of like, where does it who's who's at the center and where does it flow out from them? And oracles are like one step out and in no way down from the slan like they are they're mm -hmm. directly connected to them mm -hmm. star seers and star priests are like in the same vein but they're not like lower in the hierarchy the the oracles are just there yeah like we said yeah, conduits yeah. for yeah. the slan um hey since we're talking about units 
maybe now's a great time, a perfect time even, for us to talk about some of our favorite uh, units uh, in the Army, units, models, what, what have you. Um, I'll, I'll ask Eric first to give Phil an example, but then I'm going to ask you next, Phil. So get ready. Um, Eric, what, what's your, what's your favorite out of the, out of the range for, you know, whatever reason, man, absolute favorite. Um, it is, I mean, I, I feel bad, um, because, uh, I don't want to take anybody else's, especially if Phil's got favorites. The Carnosaur is pretty awesome, uh, in terms of being a centerpiece model, being super dynamic, having all those uh, options between um, the kit itself to build, um, having a rider on top of it. Um, so I really like the Carnosaur. Um, it's ferocious. And um, yeah, I think it embodies the, the the feral side as opposed to, you know, some more docile big things that they have. Now, do you find that, obviously it's, it's kind of modeled after like classic, like, uh, bipedal, um, like dinosaurs, like in real life, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that it's a little jarring to see how long its front arms are. Like, I understand it's not a T Rex, <laughs> I get that, but like, and yet looking at it, it just feels like its front arm should be shorter, right? Is that just me? I was just looking at the model, thinking about modeling it with uh, smaller arms, right? So, yes, it just- <laughs> yes, it just feels like in our day and age, with all that we know about dinosaurs. It's just, yeah. We'd probably just make it a less effective uh, combat, but still. Um, now, all right, Phil, Phil, was that enough time? I mean, it's plenty of time, but I, I will sort of add on to the uh, uh, sort of carnosaur bit there. And that the, uh, so a little bit of dinosaur nerding out here a little bit. Um, so the carnosaur is a, is based off of the theropod families of dinosaurs because there's not just like a t-rex there's a whole bunch of these two-legged carnivorous dinosaurs um and if you just look up some pictures of different types of theropods that they've found there's actually a number of them that have much longer arms than the tyrannosaurus so um i think they probably you know when the artists were doing this they probably looked at a number of different examples and sort of picked and chose different pieces from the different ones that they liked. Um, some of this you can see in the uh, troglodon a lot, um, giving it that that fin on its back. Um, so, Man, I bet you guys didn't expect to learn something today, oh, man. did you? Yeah. I mean, if you, you want to cut this out, that's totally fine. <laughs> I understand. No, not at all. <laughs> we don't want to learn things here about exact- real real monsters no um, no exact opposite i want another one maybe not now but like uh, <laughs> by the end of this episode i want you to drop me another fact okay um but in terms of a, a favorite unit um i've always thought that the saurus guard or as they used to be called temple guard um were always super cool um and i think i like them i mean there's a couple reasons but that like this idea of the Saurus as being like bred for purpose war machines and that each different type of Saurus is literally born for a different role on the battlefield, I think is super cool. Um, and that the Saurus guard are literally born to protect the temples and the Slon. Um, and, and like this is even seen in the rules for the, how the Saurus guard play on the tabletop, but like, 
in the in the book they talk some about like how temple guard in in the ziggurats will just you know they just stand still and they protect and until something comes to disrupt what they're protecting they don't move they will just stand perfectly still and just wait because that's their whole job and like they'll they'll dust will build up on them and they're just standing like statues for however long they have to um and they, and I think it's it's funny because they're like they're so devoted to this cause that like it even mentions that if um, like if some skinks get like too close and are like overly energetic that they'll just like cut them in half and they'll be like nope nobody's coming in here like got to keep this lawn safe <laughs> and it's just again it shows that there's like almost no it's all instinct there's no thought really they have their mm-hmm. orders and they're going to carry them out no matter what. Uh, those, those are pretty cool. Uh, I hadn't given them a second thought before you started talking and now I'm enthralled. Now I love them too. Your enthusiasm <laughs> is infectious. Um, Paul, make, make your favorite unit, my favorite unit. Tell me about them. Well, it, it's obviously the stick it on for me. I have four of them. I have two of the old metal ones. I have two of the plastic ones. I didn't um, know that. That's cool. Uh, but I, it, they were the core of a Southlands list in the old world. And I have an old land, old world Southlands list. Um, if if I could pick an old unit, which I can't, I'd pick uh, Teeny Weenie and his Cold One Riders, which were a unit of, <laughs> of a skink Cold One Riders that I bought like three boxes worth of. So, um, oh man, those are worth some big money nowadays. Yeah, not when I've assembled them and converted them, etc. But well, uh, I mean, that's fair. <laughs> fair. <laughs> Uh, but the Segadon kit to me was, it was such a revelation when it came out. Um, I love both of the builds of it. The, the the giant bow is one of my favorites, and the engine of the gods as well is just it's such a cool design. And really, what, if you look back upon it, you can see that it was a precursor to the amazing kits that they can make now. Plus, it's also one of those amazing kits where you get the monster you get the models and then you get two hero types. So regardless of which build that you build, you're going to get a skink chief or a skink priest. That's going to be extra and you can build it completely. Even when you build the entirety of the other build each time you do it. So that like, it's just, it's a super cool kit. It goes together really well. I love the platform that it's on. It was one of the, one of the first kits that also, really told the story about the race in the platform that's on the back of the Stegadon. And it's just amazing. I, I, I think it's one of the best models they've ever done. I think you just like how does. <laughs> I do like how does. Is that your secret? I do like how does because it's an integration of the background. It's an integration of two units into one. I like the Arachnarok, uh how to because of the possibilities that are in the kit, right? It still has a chief. It still has a uh, a priest, uh, a magic user, and it has the basic other models. I like the kits like that because if you really wanted to and are absolutely crazy like I am, you could build an entire army out of just the models that are on the back of the Arachnarok or just the models that are on the back of the Stegadon. And they have such a cool presence and just they command attention that it just it, it blew me away when I put them together. And I still love them to this day. It's just it, it, that was the first like, oh, my goodness, 
I can't believe that this is possible to do with plastic kit. And even though it's, you know, at this point, it's like, what, 12, 13 years old? It, it still is just an amazing kit, and I love it. Right on. Um, my favorite uh, model, or unit, I guess, is the Bastilodon, actually. So I'll join you, like in a big dinosaur model, but I'm going to pick uh, this guy. Um, I would say that, or off the bat, I would say maybe the Ankylosaurus is one of my favorite dinosaurs for whatever reason. And so obviously this isn't inspired off of that. Um, so I like the idea that um, when you have an army of dinosaurs, like the diversity of like form and shape can be so effective, like on a battlefield. And it's not just a matter of finding, you know, dinosaurs that have big jaws or big claws or, you know, you know, all, or all teeth or or spines and stuff like there's, there's ways to other integrate other shapes and functions um, into this army. And so if you were to create a dinosaur tank, and literally like a tank, like a classic, or like a tank as we know it today, like what would you do? So it's got to be he- heavily armored. So obviously the Ankylosaurus is, is involved there, but obviously it's going to have to have a, a heavy payload on top. Like it's going to have a projectile or a shot that needs to be done. Well, how do you translate that into like a Aztecian um, dinosaur uh, uh, army? Well, I, uh, what, what can we use? What, what motifs do we have available to us? So like that gem on the back of it, the, um, what is it? Solar something, solar, solar engine, gem, I think. Yeah. Yeah, um, like to translate that into a projectile is, is such a like I don't know such an inspired choice. So I think the combination of the two are awesome. Like you've got this slow moving tank um, in this dinosaur army, and, it, and it, it's sort of it's a it's a direct translation one to one, and I think it's a great uh, execution. Um, however, I will say uh, the the dual box kit where because it's got the um, Archisotech on the back too uh, is nonsense and a terrible uh, idea. <laughs> and I do not, li- I do not like it one bit. If I understand correctly, there's a, a mini realm gate inside that Archisotech and it's spitting out snakes. Seriously. <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? Ugh. I mean, Get out of here. <laughs> for the fangs of, for the fangs of Sotech. So cool. Super cool. You can make mini realm gates and that's what you choose to do with it. That's nonsense. <laughs> Get that out of here. <laughs> Um, but the uh, solar engine is legit and I think that's really, really neat. Um, fair, fair. Cool. Cool. Uh, I do want to just quickly mention the Croxagore while we're on units. Cause I don't know yeah, that they're going to come up in any other sense. So from a lore perspective, the Croxagore are important to mention because they're like the heavy laborers. So, so Paul was mentioning, um, how like there's this class society and so you've got skinks who are both administrators and craftsmen and then you've got saurus who are the fighters and then the slan who are the overlords but the builders are croxagore and and croxagore for the most part i think have sort of been left out a bit um i think this is partially due to the fact they have really old models and like i'm not sure they know what they want to do with croxagore yet so there's just not a huge emphasis on Croxagore, but um, they look a lot like Saurus, but they're like way bigger and way beefier. And they're just like, I don't want to say that they're dumb. Because they might hear you. Well, I think it's 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 less that they're dumb and it's it's more that they just don't have any sort of like conscious will. Like they just do what they're told. They don't think. Um and so, like, they're always hanging out with skinks, and the skinks are always telling them, like, okay, this is what we need you to build now. And they're like, okay, whatever, we'll just do this. And they, like, never get tired, and they're huge, and they're strong, 
And so like on the, in the lore and on the battlefield, they're supposed to be like directed by skinks, but then they've got these huge hammers and they just go and smash things faces on the battlefield because they're mindless and that's just what they do. Um, and I think it's interesting that there's like this whole subsection of the society that is only mentioned in like a unit entry and that's it. Like they don't, they don't really show mm-hmm. up in the lore at all. I love ogre sized things. Uh, and Croxgar <laughs> are that. They um, sure are. Yeah. I, th- I think that there's definitely that place for, for them. And I definitely, uh, would love to have seen new models for them. Um, because I think that they're, be- the reason I like that size is you can put details on them like you do in the bigger models that we've been talking about. Part of the reason we love, uh, the Carnosaur and the Bastilodon and the, uh, um, Stegodon is because they're big, have a lot of detail and they, you know, just, they give us a, a vibe. Um, and these guys do too. And you make them big and, and give them lots of detail and they can really show something. Like, I feel like, like the source Sunblood, the old blood and, and like those guys are just almost small enough that you lose the detail, um, of their scales or the, the detail of all the ornate stuff on them. Like it is super cool. Um, but making that just a little bit bigger, I think would be perfect. Definitely agree. I, I miss the old lore for the Croxagore where they were like buddy, buddy with the skinks back in eighth edition. You could run a unit of skinks with Croxagore inside of it. And there was this like, just cool, like, I don't know, symbiosis between the skinks and the Croxagore where they would gather around them because they could be protected when they were around them but also they could completely control the Croxagore in any way that they wanted to. And so I miss that kind of specific direction. Um, cool. Uh, any other units you guys want to talk about before we move on? Oh my God. They have so many, they have like 33 different units. So let's, yeah, not. this is a huge <laughs> range. All right. So um, these units uh, often are deployed in uh, a number of uh, what I generally will call sub-factions, but here are constellations. Um, like most uh, recent armies these, these days, there are these um, keyworded um, uh, sub-factions that can be sort of deployed, and they've got their own st- story to be told. Um, let's let's talk about some of our favorites. Uh, I'm going to have Phil do it. Tell me, tell me about your uh, Coatl's Claw. So I think, so this is one of the, new ones I, i'll say that the dracothians tail and fangs of sotek have already existed in the uh, uh, uh bhb one and two i believe um uh but so those were just for the starborn um the two new ones coatl's claw and thunder lizard are for the coalesced um and and i think that each one of these sort of gives you a view into a different aspect of Seraphon. So at a high level, Dracothian's tail is Slan focused. Fangs of Sotek is skink focused. Coatl's claw is Saurus focused. And then the thunder lizard is focused on the big monsters. Um, And I think being able to dive into the Saurus is really interesting. And the way that they sort of uh, give reason for that is that they're, um, Slan ends up getting incapacitated, uh, and so you know this whole constellation, like they're they're in Gur, they've 
lost their slan. They don't really know what to do. The skinks are freaking out. And so the Saurus just step up and are like, they do what they're supposed to do. And then like, when there's no slan on the battlefield to command everybody, they're the ones to take over. And so these old bloods sort of basically just take control of the whole constellation. And so they become this, as we talked about earlier in the, in, in the age of chaos that, um, this very feral, very savage group of Seraphon that like make a point of just churning out tons of Saurus and they're constantly trying to just um, fight and kill and like they're described as being frenzied and like they're this very different feel from what we used to see as Seraphon in their original battle tome and in the BHBs because um, previously they were all about like teleporting and magic and very controlled and they're just the complete opposite of that and i think it's really interesting that they were able to give you this juxtaposition of within one army you can have something that's completely polar opposites um and i think there's going to be a lot of players who probably like something more like quaddle's claw because it might feel a little bit more like old world saurus um where everybody's just on the ground chopping people up yeah intense um very cool uh we'll have paul talk about his fangs of sotek next lay it on me paul uh the fangs of sotek are the skink based constellation um they are a direct descendant of uh tehen huanin from the old world uh the prophet of sotek and his red backed skinks um so there is a strong uh feeling of poison um and as phil mentioned as well there is a strong theme of sacrifice running through this constellation um the fangs of sotek are the ones that you're going to see if you're in the cities of sigmar uh, because they actually send their skinks to live in the cities which is kind of a unique aspect uh in the lore they are not integrating in society per se but they do coexist in these cities they build their own buildings uh, they live among the people, but they do require blood sacrifice. And there are people that do disappear that end up on the altars of Sotek, um, which is a cool narrative hook uh, for the army, but also just a cool idea of this order force coming in. It's against chaos, but they're going to still make sacrifices to appease their god. And it doesn't have to be a chaos worshiper that's sacrificed. It's just somebody that is given their blood so that they can continue to worship their God. When Phil was talking about religious fanaticism, this is the constellation of religious fanaticism. Um, so it, it also feels very much like me as a direct descendant of the Southlands from the old world, which I also super appreciate. Um, because I, I thought that was cool lore, a cool background. So I'm, I'm very happy to see this in the book and to see the lore explored a little bit. I think one other one thing that I think is fun that they mention is that uh, while they're like sort of stealing people away to make these sacrifices, that the inhabitants of most of the free cities tend to blame the daughters of Cain for yep. all of the blood sacrifice. <laughs> like nobody's thinking about the skinks. I just think that's that's a fun dig there. It's a little too fun. Um, 
I'm a fan of the Thunder Lizard. And it's not the Thunder Lizards, which I don't really understand the titling here, but so be it. Um, I had mentioned before that um, it's not uncommon for this the Sun- Thunder Lizard group to find themselves on the uh, realm's edge. So um, what their jobs are typically is uh, they're tasked with protecting and utilizing when necessary um, the ancient technologies of the um, of their, you know, their old one gods. Um, and so they have all these um, machines and engines of war and things that they may or may not really understand how to use, but they're protecting them and keeping them safe, um, or at least trying to, um, on the realm's edge. Um, it's not uncommon, though, that like treasure hunters catch wind of these folks, or like I said, maybe the null myriad of the Osiak Bone Reapers um, still find their way to the edges of these realms and try to, you know, whether take them over or capture this, um, this technology. Um, they have a strong connection to uh, Chaman for whatever reason. I guess maybe that relates to machinery or, or uh, machinations or what have you. Um, and so uh, because of that, they have a, a predilection to collection, collecting, um, uh, what is the realm stone? Ch- Ch- shamanite um but i guess maybe That's any correct. other realm stone of the of the different realms as well and they um are known to sort of kick it back to their home um like to, to teleport it back to their home base and then actually like sort of imbue their um their beasts their monsters with it um because another component of this group actually they've got a lot going on um is not only just that they're interested in the the machinery of the old ones but then they're also really big into their um I guess they're monsters, right? They're they're stegodons, mm-hmm. they're bastilodons, they're they're carnosaurs, and so they take that realm stone I was talking about, and they like imbue some of its power into their monsters, and this because of that, their monsters are that much more sh- strong. Um, I think on the game in like in a game sense, like they have the ability to like have a whole army full of like stegodons or something close to it, right? Yep. They, f- they feature that on Warhammer. Stegodons uh, go yeah. down the line. Yep. And yep, then they exactly. Can, they get plus two attacks. On all of mm, their monsters, plus, too. plus two wounds on all of their Sorry, monsters. Plus, plus two wounds, You're right? I apologize. Plus that two wounds is wild. So again, they've got they've they've got a lot of a lot of things going on. They got a lot of moving parts. Um, but like it, it kind of goes hand in hand that the machinery the uh, of the old gods or the old ones um, are is often strapped to the back of a dinosaur, and so that's kind of uh, how how they work there. It's interesting. Um, they just have a little side where they have like a complicated relationship with like the Sylvaneth because although oftentimes being on order, they have common goals. Um, like the after effects are up for debate between whether or not like it's a rigid control over like nature where uh, the Seraphon want to use their Realm Shaper engines to, you know, make jungles and stuff versus sort of the natural progression of the Sylvaneth. And so they may be wiping out like chaos forces and then the next, uh, in the the next breath, um, be at each other's throats because um, uh, differing of opinions on how to proceed. Um, So uh, I think those guys are legit, mainly because they just have a bunch of monsters, which is the coolest. Cool. We got one more. It's the Dracothian's tale. I'm going to throw it to Phil being the guest and also, he seems to know the most about this stuff. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't, there's not, a, I think Dracothian's Tale is maybe sort of like the most vanilla of these constellations. Mm-hmm. The hammers of Sigmar of the yeah, Sigmar. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, so Dracothian's Tale, you know, they're known for like using teleportation and like striking in these precision like they launch attacks exactly where they need to be exactly when they need to be there and like that's sort of their calling card uh, their slons plan out things uh using the temple ships 
very specifically, it's called out that they specifically have more t- uh, uh, star masters than most other constellations. Um, and uh, they they fight um, just in this, this very uh, hit and run sort of way. They'll show up, they do what they need to do, and then they beam back out and they fly off to go do the next thing. Um, and so it, it really leans into that teleporting mechanic that the, the Seraphon have had before. Um, and uh, they, they then also make the point, like as, as the name would suggest, that um, in some way, Dracothian sort of, for whatever reason, looks favorably on them. And um, so... It, it's it's not explicitly called out, but it sounds like Jacothian has a active interest in this group, um, and that like as they take on b- battles that like the this uh, specifically says that like the celestial bodies grow brighter above wherever Jacothian's tail fights. Um, so it suggests that Jacothian is taking an active interest in wherever they go. So um, not really a whole lot of other like story behind them except that they're like teleporting and stuff but um still really cool nonetheless yeah well it's, they seem sort of uh to personify like the original age of sigmar like seraphon like viewpoint like it they, they encompass that that idea and now the other ones have sort of expanded beyond what was the classic interpretation of what seraphon was right on right on all right well let's, let's talk about some special characters everybody are every army's got at least one, and this army is no exception, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, who wants to talk about Lord Croak? And my question um, specifically is: Has Lord Croak changed at all, or is he the same old mummy frog that we have grown to love? I think, in short, he is the same old mummy frog because he is literally the same mummy frog. <laughs> they packed him up in one of the ships, and he's come along for the for the ride. Every so often, they'll they'll roll him out on his you know on his stone chair, and he explodes and uses celestial deliverance to wreck people. <laughs> well, so for folks who don't know, I guess let's maybe rewind a little bit. Um, who sure. who is Lord Frog, and what what's what separates him maybe from the uh, other slun? Well, and besides uh, the mort- the mortal coil, Lord Croak is the oldest quote living slun. In that's alive. Um, the twist is that he's no longer technically alive. He was actually killed ages ago and mummified, but his spirit is still bound to his body. And because of that, his spirit is so strong that he is the most powerful slon. He is the oldest slon, and he's still able to affect change upon the mortal realms through his desiccated body, right? I mean, number one, you got to take some like moment to appreciate that the pun of Lord Croak about a dead slon frog is the only <laughs> character in the book, and how amazing it is that like that has the, that's one of the only things that survived from like Chichi Huichi and Tanwanin and all these ridiculous names that they came up with. That Lord Croak is the one that, yeah, exactly. Um, so you got to take a moment to appreciate that. But he is, as it were, the guiding light of the Seraphon because he is the oldest and most respected being within the race. 
Oh, I get it now. It's because he it's because he's croaked. I get exactly. Okay. Sure. He's dead. There you go. He's there a you frog. Go. He's dead. Um, <laughs> and it, he Solid. also, you know, if you think about it, he his temple or ziggurat did not have to go into suspended animation for him because he's already dead. He doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need to sustain himself, right? Because his his spirit is so strong. That which is so, dead cannot, cannot die. die. Exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking of special characters, another another solid question from Toon King Tristan. Unfortunately, I know that the answer is going to be solid, but uh, he wants to know what are some characters that they mention in the book other than Lord Croak? Uh, they exist. There are other names in this book. Did any stand out for you guys? I feel like I know the answer to this. So there's other Slan that are mentioned by name a couple of times, but but really they're not important. Um, they they do make a point of saying that I think it's Zektoka is the Slan of um, the Fangs of Sotek. Um, so we do know that if like if you really wanted to, you could you could say that your Slan is actually this character in the lore, but um there's not there's no elaboration of like who this person is it's just a name that's attributed to a slan and that's about it yeah it, it it does lend a little bit of credence to the idea that the entire race is guided by this grand plan so it's not the individuals necessarily that make the difference it is the the sticking to the plan right and and it is you know it is the individual slan who makes the decision to land the ziggurat and become coalesced as opposed to starborn. And so the characters themselves are not important for their individuality. They're important for the actions they have achieved, um, which I think is a kind of a cool way of embodying the lore. Uh, neat. Any other thoughts about that? Because now we've got space for a little bit of a free-for-all. Do you guys have any, just general, any other points of interest uh, in this book that jumped out at, at you that you thought were particularly compelling? I've got one, but I'll let you guys go first. I have a couple, but Phil, you can oh, go first. Of course you do. Um, I, I mean, I think we've touched on most of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. I mean... Um, covered a lot of the story and a lot of the interesting points that i mean there's always a little bit more that you could talk about here and there but i think we hit on the main things all right i'm gonna go with i got three things um there was a mention of a group of people called the moon monks of hish oh yeah which i thought was a super cool uh little thing and, and how they were um they were the closest to be able to understand what was going on um during the age of chaos or something like that. Um, I might be a little bit off on that, but that just the moon monks of Hish sounded like an awesome, uh, an awesome army idea, whatever. Yeah. They, they were mentioned as like one of the, because they specifically spent a lot of time um, just like watching. They're basically astronomers, right? Like their whole thing is that they, they contemplate the heavens a lot and inadvert. It even says that like by accident, they sort of started to learn about the Seraphon because they were seeing these things that the Seraphon were doing because they control the heavens and they adjust the constellations to help them in battle. Um, and so it, they, they make the point that like 
some of this knowledge in the mortal realms for the Seraphon is coming from these groups in Hish because they just happened to notice them. Um, so that was the first kind of cool call out that I liked. Uh, the second one uh, was the Wode Lords, which were mentioned by name, um, which I really appreciated because that feels like to me a callback to the Albion campaign. Uh, which is it's kind of a deep cut, but it was back in I think seventh or sixth edition. It was um, it was a worldwide campaign that was basically a medieval version of England called Albion that had a couple of really cool models come out that I think that still stand up. Um, the Albion Truthsayer was one of the cool ones. The Fen Beast. There was Hengus the Druid and his two um, giants as well. Um, and so I, I feel like that's a cool callback and perhaps a seed that might be explored later in another campaign if we're lucky. Um, and the last kind of cool thing, uh, was that there was a mention that there are salamander skulls in the fire slayer lodge treasure vaults, um, which says that perhaps the Seraphon actually did arrive in the realms earlier than we know but we don't have much to go on to understand what actually happened which is a cool thought cool yeah right on um one uh thing that stood out to me i guess is the idea that they seraphon have a unique relationship with uh endless spells and they can actually have bound endless spells um just as just as a highlight to show that like the Slon have such a mastery over magic that like even these like very destructive, like oftentimes uncontrollable endless spells are, are mere playthings um, to our, our Slon here. Um, and I like that um, over some of the more recent battle times that we've seen, uh, they've made an attempt to have armies have sort of a unique interface with endless spells or having a, uh, their own take on how endless spells sort of work for them. The other example being how, um, the KO can like pocket an endless spell and th- release it from a bottle or something. Um, but it just goes to show that endless spells aren't sort of, aren't necessarily the sort of tacked on mm, supplement, but rather it, they can permeate, uh, through the different armies and have different, um, uh, uses or uh, ways to be utilized uh, with, with with these forces, which I thought was pretty neat. Uh, cool. Any other points of interest? Eric, do you got any points of interest you want to talk about? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I still, I still like trying to figure out, like, like we talk about alien, we talk about, you know, something that's so different, you know, it's, it's often talked about with like, um, in 40k like the tyranids are just this mindless race of of devourers or you know even with like the eldar or or elven races that they're so intelligent or have lived so long that we can't possibly relate to them and i feel like the the seraphon should be perceived in a way that's even harder to relate to uh in an interesting way um which may be why some of those you know like tic-tac-toe and stuff were removed a little bit like they definitely were had a lot more jokes um as part of their their history um but now they're a lot more um mysterious and one of the every time i think 
they mention, you know, the Slon know, but they won't tell. Um, I picture, you know, a Slon looking over its shoulder at the camera going, tee hee, tee hee. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's, if you want to interject some humor back into it, it just, there's, there's a mystery there. It's, it's, it's pretty fun to have um, that aspect of them. So. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like Jeremy Vedok did not write this book because he's the one who came up with those, all those ridiculously wonderful puns. So <laughs> I, I do miss that a little bit. Cool, cool. Um, so we have a couple more listener questions. Let's see if we can, we can burn through them real quick. Uh, Ned, never dead Ned, though he changed his name recently, so I'll just call him Ned, uh, has a question. He wants to know, uh, how does the lore hold up compared to the Warhammer Fantasy Battles lore with them? I feel like we've been doing a lot of talking about uh, old Warhammer Fantasy. How do you guys feel, at least maybe the folks who, who know a little bit about it, um, how does the lore hold up? How does it compare? Um. I would say it definitely holds up, but at the same time, it doesn't hold up just because there was so much time to explore in the old world. Um, the idea of having Lustria and then the Southlands is something that's not really explored in this book uh, because it is the realms. And so the realms become kind of shorthand for those different areas. So I wish there was a little bit more explanation of exactly how that worked. But at the same time, I don't feel like the the battle tome is lacking exploration of the lore, and I think it, it, it for me at least fully satisfied my understanding of how the race is, is developed in the the mortal realms and how they're going to move forward. Yeah, and and I feel like you don't necessarily have to compare them because mm -hmm. it's not like there was an end and a beginning they, they make the point that yes. it's like this is a continuation um unlike some armies there is no break really between these two things so there the warhammer fantasy battle lore is still the lore of the seraphon it's just a long time ago um mm -hmm. so In a galaxy far far away literally um <laughs> so in that sense, I kind of like that. Um, I think I think it was good to, rather than trying to like completely start over and give them a whole new backstory, like it would have been so hard to try and separate them from that because yeah, know, they're in their spaceships that literally came from the old world. That like I I appreciate that they understood that like the only way that we're going to make this work is that we still have to have some connection there, and I think they did it in a in a pretty good way. Cool, right on. Um, I'll ask, uh, maybe continuing on that theme, um, Darth Alec wanted to know, uh, he wants to know how Ret. well, he has want, wants to know a lot of stuff actually, but one of them is how retconny is the new lore. Did you guys find it retconny either, either from a Warhammer fantasy perspective or a just previous iteration of the Seraphon perspective? I mean, I feel like for it to have been retconned, there would have had to have been something for them to have retconned. Like there was so little lore in the first book that like all they were doing was just writing the story this time. Like they just didn't do it the first time around. Well, you could probably say that like, yes, that's retcon. You're going back and writing their backstory now that you know what's already happened. Um, the fact that they just kind of didn't do it in the first place means that this is sort of the first take. There's not really a retcon in in my mind 
I would, I would definitely agree. I don't think there is a retcon at this point. Um, it is further exploration in the background, but because they have the Starborn and the Coalesced, it allows the Starborn for me is is the old lore, and the Coalesced is the new lore, and they exist, they coexist side by side. I think really well and in an interesting way. So to me, there there is no retcon. Interesting, because to me, the Coalesced. So it's not. I would also say it's not a retcon, but Coalesced is the old world uh, and giving people back kind of their their ability to play in that uh, in the physical world, like be in their temples in the jungle. Um, whereas a big, you know, part of the big uh, kind of pushback about the original lore is it wasn't like like Phil said, it wasn't grounded enough, or it was so different from what they knew that we got the coalesced because of that. But I love that they didn't change uh, other than making maybe the remember. I I really enjoyed the remembered part of it. Like that the salon were so powerful that, that they could, um, you know, imagine the magic of the stars into tangible things uh, and have them fight. I like, I'm fine with the idea that they've made that into like, it's just the way it appears like, uh, you know, science so advanced that it looks like magic. Um, so, so that's my take on it is I, I, I love that they kept, you know, the star magic and the, you know, veins full of, of star magic, et cetera. Um, but then also gave players who've been playing a long time, their jungles back. So, um, I think they, AOS has room for all of that. And we were, you know, a lot of people said that from that first book, like there's room for all of it. Uh, and I think this book just makes room for all of it. Yeah. I think our answers are kind of progressively going from one end, end of the spectrum to the other. Whereas we started with not thinking it was red Connie. Um, I, I, I think it, I don't know. I felt a little red Connie going through it and I don't necessarily mind the direction they went with. Like that's fine. And I I'm cool with them sort of correcting some what we might even call mistakes from the previous one, but like to Eric, what Eric, what Eric was saying, like they didn't explicitly say that like the Seraphon were like memories and now they aren't like that has changed. Um, and they did a fine job trying to explain that. Like, Oh, it's like, again, like Eric said, um, sure to the untrained eye, it seemed like this, but like when I read that sentence, it was very obvious that like, Oh, I see what they're doing here. They're, they're fixing that previous thing. Like, and in my mind, that's the definition of a retcon again, justified. I'm fine with it. I don't mind it. But like it is what it is. Like that is what they fighting do. words. I mean, they used to, ha- yeah, they used to have the the demon keyword, and now they don't. Like that's now a difference and sort of a, a change of a previous iteration. Um, so if I could see how that could bother someone, maybe that some other person was wedded to the idea that these were demons or mem- memories or what have you. Um, and if that's the case, yeah, that's not that's not here anymore. That's gone. And sorry to tell you that, uh, but. Then also to Eric's point, I'm f- I'm fine with the direction they went, and I agree that there is room to have both the old and the new. Um, the old world is very much, I, I, like we said, sort of a, a grounded perspective on it, and then you take the Starborn and you, you sort of ramp up what Seraphon are to, to 11 and, and sort of introduce that very high fantasy out-of-this-world um, element uh, to the Seraphon. It makes them fit, I think, Probably a little bit better um, when compared to the other armies that exist uh, in in this setting. So I'm um, I'm down with it. Uh, Darth Alec also wants to know uh, what do you feel about the lore going back to the old ones and the Great Plan after abandoning it during the end times and the first Seraphon tome. 
Um, and then I think he had an addendum. Uh, how, how do the old ones jive with the mortal realms were created post end times lore as per the core rule book? So he's interested about uh, old ones and uh, how they fit uh, with the current setting. How do you guys feel about that? I deep thoughts from so, Phil. <laughs> so the the old ones are the. We could start getting into some fairly, like, I feel like, I don't know. They, I think they need to be careful with the old ones, like starting to sort of say that like, oh, they, they, you know, created all this stuff that exists. Like it starts to elevate them to this level of being like the creator forces of the mortal realms almost. And, and I think, I think you almost, I don't necessarily want that to happen because I think it starts to like it begs more questions then of like well then how did the old ones do that and like how what is what parts of the mortal realms then still have direct influence from the old ones and you know you start getting onto these tangents that i don't think need to exist or should exist um i think i think it's it's in a good place for the seraphon where it's like they have old ones technology they're still following the plans of the old ones, even if, you know, maybe at one point it seemed like that was not going to be the continued direction for the Seraphon. Um, but I think it just gives them a, a, a strong throughput um, for the army to say, like, this is why they're doing what they're doing. Um, because I think every force needs to have that to give people a sense of, like, an army needs to have a purpose for you to be able to comprehend why they'd be doing what they're doing in the realms. Um, and I think the old ones fill that need really well for the Seraphon. But I, like I said, a little wary of starting to make them like the progenitors of the mortal realms. That's, I think, maybe in not a good direction. I'd agree with that. I mean, I think that part of my statement of, I, you know, wish they had said that the Slan made the realm gates was to give more um, agency to the, to the Slan and the Seraphon. And I think to the point too, where, um, you know, having old ones that had a plan and then nobody, everybody has a different way of interpreting it to me undermines the idea that they have like a dry, a, a guiding point. I'd almost rather there be these are these are the Slan are so intelligent uh, that they each have this master plan of how they would go about eradicating chaos, and but there's just such a just a slight difference in their spawning or their origination or their perspective that they come into conflict. So part of me would would rather not have the old ones um, and give the Slan elevate the Slan to kind of being. Uh, kind of in that position, it, like make, make them more mysterious or make them more, um, yeah, elevate them more. But that's me. I'm gonna I'm gonna hang my shingle on that old standard of the unreliable narrator, um, because I I don't think that we can take this as an authoritative history, especially because it's in the Seraphon battle tome, right? Like, you mean this isn't real? So, well, what I'm saying is that 
you can't say that because the Seraphon believe that the old ones created the realm gates, that the old ones actually created the realm gates, right? Like what we're exploring here in the battle tomes that I really enjoy is we're exploring the idea that we have an oral history that is passed down instead of a written history for the vast majority of this. It doesn't matter where the person starts their story because this person is telling the authoritative version from this perspective. And I, I think it's a much more palatable and a much more interesting story if you approach it from that way, as opposed to trying to take everything that's written in the battle tomes as a gospel truth. So what I'd say though is I, I agree with you that in the story that they're not, it's presented as unreliable. We're st- I think Phil and I are stepping outside of what's written into what GW has chosen to pose or make part of the story. So it's very much intended that you believe or that you buy into the idea of the old ones from, uh, from how it's written. And I'm saying as a, as a, as a choice from the editors or from the storytellers that the old ones old ones doesn't do much for me as a, as a device. So not how it's used, like whether you, you, whether the person in hammer hall is meant to believe in the old ones or not, isn't the point I think I'm trying to make. It's more of, I think that there are, I think there are other more interesting things to, to, to play off of that don't exist that they didn't choose to do, but whatever, you know? So it's, I love the old ones because there is no evidence that they actually existed. And I love that callback to them because it is the nebulous, undefined primogenitor idea, right? Like to me, that is, that is such a cool idea because it could spawn so many theories could spawn so many ideas of how this actually plays out. And because there already is that kind of like, social history on forums on twitter etc i appreciate tapping back into that well for this idea because i don't think that that well is dry i think there's a lot more that could be said and could be done and so i I understand that it would be cool to have a new idea it'd be cool to have the slon do the realm gates but i don't i don't want the slon to have that much agency they already have so much agency being able to control their entire races that giving them that much agency would, to me, would actually tilt the setting into a place that I would not appreciate because it it allows them to have more power than I think any race should have. Does that make sense? Yeah, but they can already control what the Realm Gates do. Like, so building, building one's not a stretch beyond that. Like, the old ones are into you know, practically did they create the realms, right? That's, I, I'm not looking for that level, but I'd rather the realms have just been created out of, um, you know, whether it's the explosion of the old world or because the, these elder gods like the Dracothian, you know, breathed fire in a certain way. So yeah, it's just a, it's just a, I don't, the, the, the people that the old great old ones made this isn't as interesting to me. So that's all I'm saying. Um, 
from my perspective, I don't know that I care one way or the other if the old ones exist to the point about whether or not they jive with the mortal realms being created post the end times. I think it still works. Um, I, I don't think there's any sort of necessarily any sort of plot holes that would prevent that from making any sense and that the old world, uh, the old ones very well could have done what they did with the old world um, and still had a hand separately uh, in the uh, sort of creation of the moral realms or the guidance of it, or maybe they found it later and, and, and shaped it a little bit. Um, it, it, given we're dealing with things of such immense power, I, I think the timeline can work such that they could have been involved really at any point and whether or not they directly created the realm gates or, you know, had the slam do it, slam do it later or, you know, a joint effort. Um, all this uh, isn't precluded by the way the story has been told thus far. So I, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'd be willing to be corrected if somebody has any examples of why it doesn't line up, but I, I think it still does. Yeah, I guess it's the question of did the I think Phil brought it up where was the were the realm, mortal realms created as a result of uh, the old world blowing up, or did they exist here prior to the old world? Do we have a sense of that? I'm under the impression that it did they were created because of the end times, but that doesn't mean the old world old ones couldn't have still been involved when they were created. Is is there something that flies in the face of that? No, so only in that in the old world the old ones were before before uh which would put the old ones as active um agents between the end times and age of sigmar which would make them less old oh i see what you're saying like do we think they don't exist today anymore or or are they like long gone i mean i don't think that question is ever really like they've always been this mysterious race that came to wherever and then did stuff, you know, whether it's seed the a species or build technology or whatever, and then they fly away and then they're just gone. So, I mean, I don't see any reason why they couldn't have then seen like, hey, there's this new place. Let's go check that out. Like, I don't, I mean, we just don't know anything about them. So like, it, it's so open-ended that I don't see how they're like, that there's really a reason that there couldn't be this connection, but it, it's again, you know, it's, it's a very powerful, supposedly race of beings like on like the same level as like God beasts, I guess is probably the closest thing we have in age of Sigmar to the, that same level. Cause it certainly sounds like it's above the pantheon gods. I, it feels like it's so undefined that they could really be doing whatever you want. Like you could there's, I mean, and then there's also like, I think we touched on earlier that like Necrons potentially could be a creation of the old ones. If you wanted to like tie the two universes together for 40 K and Age of Sigmar and Warhammer fantasy. Um, and I think they leave that kind of ambiguous on purpose so that people are allowed to speculate and there's really no wrong answers. Um, but, but it also means that there's not really any right ones either. So yeah, fair enough. Let's keep on, let's keep on moving. Um, he also asks, uh, do the Seraphon now, uh, have a functional space in AOS or are they still on the outskirts of the setting? 
Um, and then I'll, I'll tie that into uh, your dad's Squigs question, which is, uh, what do you think of the, the future of the Seraphon is, both model-wise and in the new, new universe, do they fit well into the Age of Sigmar? Kind of a, kind of a similar question. Uh, where, do you, where do you think the place for the Seraphon in AOS is? Does it still exist? Do they feel a, a, a need laid on me? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, I think I like, even though that they've kind of graded up a little bit, I like that um, they feel more, even more order than uh, than the Stormcast do. Like almost more righteous, um, uh, or more focused on the, the the killing of chaos or the eliminating of chaos um, at a higher level, even. So I think there's there's a place to out Stormcast the Stormcast a little bit. I think model wise in the future, I think we might see even more of this like technology. Um, this, especially with the, the Thunder Lizards talking about how they're boosting their technology and understanding what's going on, you know, like I think we're going to probably see something that further pushes the envelope of the solar engine or, you know, the gauntlet of the gods that's on the old blood's arm, you know, like, we're going to see more of that push forward, I think. Uh, Phil, you've been jonesing for the Seraphon for a while now. Um, does this new book cement the Seraphon in, uh, uh, with a place in the in AOS? Um, and what do you think they're going to go from here? I definitely think it gives them a solid place in the Age of Sigmar. I think uh, something we didn't really talk a lot about, but the fact that we now know that like skinks are living in the cities of Sigmar as well, I think is a really important tie-in to give them... Um, a connection to the rest of order. Um, and, and so I feel like um, they, they certainly have a place. I think they, they will be working in parallel a lot, I think with the rest of order. Um, although, you know, as we've mentioned, they're sort of like the purest form of like anti-chaos. I mean, I know that's order, but like the order factions don't all sort of pertain to the like that pure sense of what order would be. So, um, I, I think that they can they can sort of be that, that almost authoritarian level of order, where it's like everything is going to have an exact purpose and function in place, and like um, I think it'll be interesting to try and play that out in the in the story because that that probably doesn't jive very well with a lot of like the free peoples in the age of sigmar um like they probably don't appreciate their cities getting wiped off the face of the earth because the like they just happen to be on a ley line nexus and they're like "Mm, sorry we need this space you're all dead um so i think there could be some tension there too um i think that's going to be interesting yeah i agree um if you would have asked me before reading this book, I would have thought that, uh, or I would have maybe said that this was a Tomb King equivalent army and it, it probably shouldn't have made it this far. Um, but now that I've spent more time thinking about it, talking about it and like reading the, the battle tome, I think it, they are uniquely positioned in that they are probably one of the most direct descendants from the world that was. And if we're going to continue to sort of have that thread that links us back to the old world, there's no reason why this can't be 
this army can't be that thread, like to, as sort of a reminder as to the connection between the moral realms and um, the old world. Um, and so because of that, I, I'm warming up to the idea of having them sort of uh, continue on. Um, I don't think they'll ever be the main characters. They'll never really be the stars. They're always going to be sort of supplemental. Uh-huh. And there's, I mean, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, and they're, I don't know when I expect the next time for them to get, uh, you know, new models or anything. It, it may be, you know, forever before they end up actually getting anything new. Um, and they'll always sort of serve as sort of like plot devices or, you know, plot movers um, for the sake of some other, you know, maybe more important army. Um, but like, I'm okay with that. I mean, like I don't play them, so it doesn't really bother me all that much, but uh, it, it there, there's, there's a need for armies like that. And I think the Seraphon can fill that, fill that role. Um, and it's nice that they already have quite a large range, even if some of them, it's a little outdated that like you still have a lot of options and a lot of uh, creativity and, and the army itself sort of lends itself to getting creative with it. Um, plus dinosaurs are cool. So I think it, it, they'll be, they'll be around for a while. Uh, final question um, from Thunder KQ wants to know if you were to build a Dinotopia themed force, what color scheme would you use? Uh, I really liked the Dinotopia books as a, I guess, kid. Um, but the dinosaurs were all different colors. I don't know how you would get a color scheme out of that. But do you guys have any thoughts? What color scheme would you use? Even I'll tell you what. Even if you weren't doing a Dinotopia theme force, if you were doing any Seraphon force, what color scheme would you go about using? Well, to address the Dinotopia themed, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's watercolor. Um, so I would probably use some desaturated colors for your color scheme. So maybe something like contrast paints or using glazes to uh, glaze down those colors and use the desaturation to link the colors together as opposed to necessarily the um, being straight like red, green, white, or purple, yellow, green, right? I would probably use the desaturation to allow you to make some natural looking markings on the, the dinosaurs themselves. I think it would be really cool if you actually did a Free Cities army using the dinosaurs. Um. I think that would be a really cool take. Um, but as far as having a strong triple color triad, um, I think that would kind of miss the theme and the the cool look of the Danatopia. So I wouldn't probably stick with that as opposed to normally when that would be a really strong idea to make a strong identity for the army. Cool. Anybody else have any thoughts? I mean, that's a solid answer. Phil, what's the theme of your force? So I, I really, at least for the humanoid figures, I do actually really like just that, that very bright blue color. I just think it, it stands out really nicely. Um, and I don't see a lot of reason to try and change that, but for, and, and I mean, maybe this is not super creative, but for thinking about the army, it's like, well, here are these bright blue, blue lizards. They're just like that's how they were made that's the color that they are um but all the monsters and things that they use are creatures that live in these places naturally and they all have their different colors so i tried to think about it as like well what if we look at nature what would these things look like so like my carnosaur is green i was probably going to use um blues or greens on the flying creatures just because like in nature like predators that fly have lighter colored bellies because it makes them look, they blend in more with the sky. So like I was going to go with a more realistic uh, 
color scheme for a lot of the creatures, um, which I know is not always super interesting or entertaining, but it's something that I think uh, feels very grounded um, and can give a sense of cohesion to a force to be like, it's supposed to look like a lived, real, you know, breathing thing. Yeah, my my Seraphon are also the same color, so I would definitely be on board with Phil's idea as well. Uh, I've got two thoughts. One, I would think I would love to see um, a um, star-bound, star-born uh, list or whatever paint scheme where they're very ethereal. You know, trying to make that um, I don't know somewhere between. And I think this came out like when the army first, when the first book came out, thought this would be cool where. You, you paint them something ethereal, but then kind of like, uh, like the Tau camo look where they're, you know, like they're, they're turning solid or they're turning more, um, tangible would be really cool. Um, but that's a lot of, you know, being really good with, with lights on the inside and darks on the outside kind of thing. Um, otherwise for my cog for it, I've thought about, you know, having a few like skinks as guides or, um, something where the skinks are kind of trailing them as they're marching and stomping through the um the forests in Garan um that there'd be some dinos i think i'd probably go a little more like uh yellow browns with some you know an accent color of red or or something like that there's there's your answers to your your listener questions uh you're welcome Thanks, guys, for asking them, though. Uh, very kind of you. Uh, let's uh, get to the end. Before we, we wrap the show up, I want to talk about maybe some Black Library books that folks might want to uh, read if you uh, want to find out more about Seraphon. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of Seraphon-focused stories. In fact, I don't know of any. They may exist, but I haven't read any of them. Um, but, uh, for example, there are some short stories that do feature Seraphon as... I'll say antagonists, though I'm always on their side, so they'll always be protagonists for me. But um, they do uh, show up in Beneath the Black Thumb by uh, David Geimer, where they fight off some Nurgle forces. Um, They're in the Godless short story, where they end up fighting off some Slanesh forces. So you can tell there's a theme, uh, anti-chaos here. That's that's another one that's by David Geimer. Um, And then I believe they're in uh, The Lord of the Cosmic Gate by Gav Thorpe, which... I think they're fighting off Zinch, so we're 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 covering some covering some ground there with a defiance of the the, the chaos forces, and they're always trying to mess with their goals. So, um, if you like seeing chaos square off against Seraphon or Seraphon squaring off against chaos, give those short stories a spin. Um, they're they're pretty good. I think I read them read them all, so they're 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 a okay. Um, unfortunately, like I said, there's not really a lot of Seraphon stories that would feature them in their leading role, whether that's because they may or may not make great point of view characters, or you just haven't really gotten around to it yet. But uh, if anybody's able to pull it off, I'll be first in line to read those stories. Maybe I'll be second in line behind Phil. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But if we think of anything, we'll let you know, or listeners, if you have any stories that feature Seraphon that you want to talk about, please uh, let us know. Um, I'd be happy to read them. And finally, the way we, wrap most of these shows off is let's do a final uh review from our hosts and we can talk about uh what what we thought about the book as a whole um and whether or not we uh liked it or, or recommend it i know we've touched on it a little bit but let's let's put a wrap a bow around it um let's start with phil as the guest i 
as a Seraphon player, really enjoyed this book. Um, I felt like it put a lot of meat on the skeleton that um, we had originally. Um, I was perfectly happy with all the directions that they took everything. Um, I, I found a lot of the little stories um, and tableaus that they had for just sort of fleshing out like what the Seraphon have been doing in the mortal realms to be very entertaining. Um, and yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. I think, um, I think Seraphon might be one of those armies that people don't have as good of an understanding of, um, compared to some, um, just because of the nature of them not being, you know, as prevalent in the stories elsewhere. So even if you, you know, ingest a lot of the lore at you know at the whole you probably don't know a lot about seraphon so um this one might be a good read just just to fill out some of those uh fringe areas of the lore that um aren't going to get mentioned a lot elsewhere outside of this book yeah i agree that's true uh eric what'd you think about it i'm gonna give this book uh 300 out of 365 days in the aztec calendar um, and, uh, I think that's cause I, I do think that there's, um, a lot of some interesting things in here that, you know, tie to the old world and bring this, this, uh, army in line with AOS in a way that, you know, pleases both people that want to move forward and those who want to, you know, have something of the old world still, uh, maybe more so than any other you know, army in, uh, age of Sigmar. And I think maybe that's just, I, they've become more, more dimensional, I think, uh, with these, these new ideas. Um, so I think that's really cool. Um, but I think, you know, battle tomes going to be really more focused to somebody who wants to play big dinos, you know? So I think, uh, if you like big dinos, if you like, um, complex, uh, thinking skinks and amphibians, you know, this is, uh, this is really cool. Right on. Uh, Paul, what'd you, what'd you think? Um, I probably would give this six out of eight spider legs. I did really enjoy the lore that was there. Um, I, I appreciated the four constellations, but I, I think I'm missing a little bit of the, I don't know if it's regional differences. Um, all the differences to me read a lot as it's in this realm, so it has this property, right? Um, there was not as many, I, I missed the individual armies and more of like kind of a, a cool, I don't know, having any named skink heroes, having any named Saurus heroes. Um, I, I missed that agency. Uh, and I wish that would have been a little bit more prevalent. Um, but that being said, I'm not disappointed in the book. I just wish there was a little bit more to, a little bit more to hook your own army into the narrative. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, from my perspective, I'll maybe just give it, uh, I'll give it three out of four of the main constellations. I can't think of a better rating system. Um, and I, Seraphon were so very, very low on my list, uh, before reading this. So, uh, they, they've, improve their standing they're moving up in the world a little bit i think this does a better job of 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 fleshing them out uh as opposed to being stardust um and 
if if this is the direction they end up going, I I, I support it and I, I I hope to know more. And um, as I say, with almost all our battle tome uh, reviews, I I can't wait to see Seraphon leave their mark on the story at large. Um, if if they are going to be a full fledged army that we're going to see a lot more of, I know sort of contrary to what maybe I predicted before, but like if you're gonna if you're gonna use them, use them um, and put them to work. Uh, affecting the moral realms, even if they they do it subtly. I mean, I don't need you know big flashy showy um, actions or, or efforts in the world, but like I want to know that they um, somehow are pulling some strings in some way uh, to you know affect the direction that the moral realms go in. Um, and I and I hope they do because um, they obviously are capable of doing so. So let's let's put that immense power um, to work. So I, I I'm optimistic for the future, and I, I do hope to to see more. Uh, because they're cool. They're giant dinosaur people. How, I mean, what's not to love? Um, any other thoughts, everybody? Lamame. Too bad you missed your chance. Um, Eric, would you would you be so would you be so kind to close us out? It's time for our reforging, but Sigmar Willing will be back soon. Like, subscribe, share, or leave a review. Join us on Discord. Drop a tip on our Patreon. Anything you can do will spread the word of Sigmar farther than we can do it on our own. Chat with us anytime about your thoughts on Twitter at The Mortal Realms. Where can they find you, gentlemen? Uh, I'm Aaron, and you can find me on Twitter at Dosesos. I'm Phil, and I'm I'm on uh, What the Hex podcast for you uh, Underworlds players. Uh, my name is Paul, and I am at BJ Shard. And this is Eric. I'm at Gamer on Twitter, and you can find all of our Mortal Realms content and shows at themortalrealms.com. Get ready to hear a whole lot of unintelligible growl. <laughs> Unfathomable plans. God, why do you give me these words? <laughs> Unfathomable. Unfathomable. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, talking, talking, talking. Thunder lizards are beset by the no myriad. I'm just going to read the words of the bone reapers on a myriad. What? I used the word twice of realms edges.